Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at frito And we welcome you to this edition of Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. I'm Eric Lopez hosting as Jeff Sharon is on vacation. That's what he told us. I personally think he is trying to be part of the group that includes Alex Rodriguez and Bradley Beal to buy the New York Mets, and he's just not telling us. Nonetheless, he's not with us on this episode, but who is joining me is Brian Murphy, which means, Murph, you're not part of that Mets group that's trying to purchase the Mets, are you? Uh, as a sports writer, I don't think that's possible. I mean, a very select few of us have enough money to, to buy a ticket to a game, much less uh, go forth into an ownership group. That's true. So uh, good luck yeah. to the whoever purchases the Mets on that. Plus, why would you want to be involved with them? But that's a whole other – I mean, you know, it, it's, it, whoever's going to purchase the Mets, it's going to be a hedge fund manager. And um, so have fun with that because I'm sure they'll definitely look out for the club's safety. That's true. So I, while Jeff figures that out and maybe he's on vacation, on location, getting rained on, uh, coming up on this Black and Go Benneret podcast edition, we'll talk about conference games only in college football. Is that where we're headed with the American Conference and UCF? We'll discuss that. Of course, we're going to be joined by Cindy Ball Malone, the head coach of UCF. Some big news and great news for UCF softball late last week with the announcement that seniors Aaliyah White Kira Klarkowski and Jasmine Esparza will be back to the Knights in 2021. Well, I'll talk to Coach Ball Malone about that and the outlook for UCF at 2021. In fact, me and Murph, we're going to do a little bit of a skeleton, a little bit of a skeleton look at the depth chart for baseball softball, which could be very promising for 2021. Uh, that'll be up later, plus ask Banner at questions, including how's McKenzie Milton doing? That's one of the questions on Ask Bannerette. We'll talk about that, uh, among other tidbits but we'll uh that's all coming up on this edition of black and gold Bannerhead podcast of course you can listen to us on your favorite podcast devices make sure you subscribe to our podcast and of course leave us a great review uh tell us how great we are and then also of course listen to some of our previous episodes we've had some great guests on recently of course including warren craval of philadelphia they have advanced to the knockout stage in the mls so that's good karma there and among others uh, check us out on our wherever you are as far as the podcast is concerned. And, of course, you can follow us on social media, on the black and gold uh, UCF underscore banneret on Twitter. And, of course, we're on Facebook as well. All right, uh, Murph, let's begin, obviously, with some news that obviously happened as well late last week but could have obviously uh, uh, really begin the trend. And that was, of course, the Big Ten and the Pac-12 announced late last week that they were going to go conference only for a football schedule, and really probably all their sports in the fall. Uh, that was the, make, the decision that was made for them. There's been reports that the ACC will probably follow suit. However, nothing official 
from the ACC in that regard. Uh, the SEC, nothing official. Greg Sankey has been on many uh, news out, uh, sports outlets, including the Paul Feinbaum show recently, saying no official decision on the SEC and what they're going to do until the end of this month. Obviously, the reason why we bring this, this up, this affects UCF and probably the American Conference. UCF is scheduled, was scheduled to play North Carolina to open the season on September 4th and, of course, had a trip to Georgia Tech. Uh, but as you tweeted out, Murph, when all this was coming out late last week, uh, I wouldn't make, be making any reservations if I was a night fan uh, of those games, wouldn't we, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess what's funny is like, you know, we all thought because the reports came from very reputable sources, insiders in college football, that it was just a, a fait accompli and that at some point that day or maybe the next day, the ACC would announce something. Uh, and to which they haven't, I guess if you still want to cling on to the sliver of hope that UCF might still host North Carolina and might still travel to Georgia Tech, I guess you I guess you still can at this exact moment because it's not official um, but let's like it doesn't take it doesn't take much tea leave reading to know that it's going to be official soon. It's just a matter of when, uh, and we're going to be most likely playing, you know, at, at the very most uh, conference only schedules throughout college football. Um, I think mostly because of the cut and certainly they say cut down and travel. Kind of, it's more about conferences having their own way of of testing athletes and handling athletes. Uh, with the coronavirus. And so when you've got athletes from different conferences matching up, you might have a- athletes under different testing regimens and really um, not being looked at as the same. And so I think in a, in a matter to uniform everything, they want to just keep the contests between athletes of the same conference. And I think that's kind of what's driving this most of all. Yeah, and it's control, right? Like so, And we've seen this in the MLS. For those that have followed, the MLS has had to do some rescheduling. Uh, due to some positive tests and tests taking a little longer. So they've rescheduled around the tournament. So by doing a conference-only schedule, the conference has complete control. In other words, the two school, the schools that are playing each other, they can go through the conference. I'm sure the conferences would have a protocol by the time the season, in theory, would start. It also buys them time. You know, if they want to push back the season to October, let's say, they can do that with a conference-only schedule. Heck, let's say things don't work out in the fall and they decide, hey, let's play in the spring. You could do that with a conference-only schedule. The problem with a non-conference schedule is that's a lot easier said than done. You can't just do that because you got to go through multiple parties, and that gets very complicated at times. I think that's why – that decision was made. It's not, you know, I know people were taking shots. Well, how can, so, you know, how can Maryland not play, you know, a team in state but can go to Nebraska? It's, I don't think it's about that. And I think they would be the first to realize, admit that. Um, mm-hmm. I think the interesting thing about the ACC, I think that the UCF will not end up playing North Carolina and Georgia Tech. I think the ACC and the SEC, the only, there, there's a scenario that I see in talking to people that work in the SEC, I've talked to in the ACC. It, a lot of the chatter has been, what about the Florida-Florida State game, for example, ACC versus SEC? There's, some, there's four rivalries between those two conferences, Florida-Florida State, Georgia-Georgia Tech, Louisville-Kentucky, Clemson-South Carolina, that an, under a conference-only schedule would not be played. So I think the, those two conferences in particular might be still have conversations about, well, maybe we'll do a conference schedule but also allow – one non-conference game, so those rivalry games could get played. In fact, um, as somebody pointed out to me in, in looking this up, 
Mississippi State, for example, was scheduled to play NC State this year. North Carolina was actually going to play Auburn following the UCF game. So, in theory, you already have six ACC versus SEC matchups that, in theory, you could play. And then it's a question of, do you, you know, what do you do with the other teams in the leagues? And, of course, there's the Notre Dame factor from the ACC standpoint and how do they fit in on this. And then you have some factors where the Big 12, I think there's like three or four matchups where the Big 12 plays the SEC and the ACC. So, what I'm saying is I think there's still a chance that those conferences may try to figure out a way to make those games happen because it does make sense, doesn't it, Brian? If you're going to play a season like Florida, Florida State, for example, that's a two-hour bus ride. I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a lot safer than Florida State going to Chestnut Hill to play Boston College, even though they wouldn't this year, but you get my drift. So I do wonder if those leagues maybe try to figure that out. The bottom line is regardless – None of that is good for UCF. I don't think UCF will play any of the ACC teams under any scenario. Uh, so let me ask you this. Do you see any scenario where the American Conference does not play, uh, does not at least announce or, or basically try to play a conference-only schedule? Do you see any scenario where the American Conference teams would be allowed to play a non-conference game? No, and, I, and it's just from what we know already, like – the American Conference isn't going to be some sort of, of, of rogue of rogue actor here. They're going to follow the cues and leads set for them by the bigger conferences. And two of those dominoes have already fallen, right? And I, I think it only stands to reason that we could expect the other big conferences, like you mentioned, the SEC and the ACC, to follow suit. And then from there, the, the AAC will fall in line. And so, no, I don't think we'll see them face – you know, FIU either. Uh, and so now you're looking at, well, you know, when would the season start? If it would, would, we, would we start it in late September at ECU, which has its own issues right now, if anybody's not paying attention uh, to ECU athletics. Uh, and so, but no, I don't, I don't think there's a really, like just, just today, I don't really think there's a way in which the AC, the AAC will say, yeah, we see what's going on with, with conferences canceling non-conference competition, but we're going to forge ahead we're going to play like this, this FIU game. We're going to try to make it up somehow. Like, no, they're not. They're going to, they're going to fall in line with the rest of them. It's just about when these other conferences make their formal decisions, which uh, is coming up here. And obviously it's got to be in less than two weeks because in about three weeks from now, we've got camps opening. You do. And again, I don't see the ACC allowing their teams to play a non-conference game unless it's one of those situations where they have an agreement, for example, with the SEC and allow those rivalry games to happen. I'm not even 100% convinced that's going to happen. I could see a scenario where there's too many egos there, and at the end of the day, they're like, all right, we tried. We're just going to go conference only. Um, and there is something to be said. You could argue, you know, if you're a rival, do you really want to be playing your rivalry game this year if you can't have fans in attendance or if you have limited attendance, right? Like, yeah. so – I, you know, I don't know what's the, you know, if you're UCF, like, yes, obviously it's disappointing that you lose the North Carolina game. But I wonder, Murph, if you couldn't play this game or if you did try to play this game, but you couldn't have anybody in the building, did you really lose anything if you're UCF by having this game not be played and maybe push back down the road? No, because haven't we seen this before? <laughs> yes, we have. The last time UCF was scheduled to play North Carolina – uh, a hurricane kind of decided to kind of get near the Carolina area and decided, yeah, we're not going to play that game either. So maybe we shouldn't be playing North Carolina in football anytime soon. I'm just saying, Murph. 
I, I do not, by the way, I do not buy <laughs> any 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 uh, suggestion that there is a quote-unquote curse around playing Georgia Tech in North Carolina. There's been some really bad luck. Okay. Uh, but uh, but uh, no, I, 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 well, UCF, UCF would stand to lose if even if the game is played because if they can't if the fans can't be in the stands if they can't get any fan revenue then then what is what is UCF doing that's a that's a major driver driver for them so if they can't, it really is, as Danny White has said multiple times if they can't have fans then then they're really going to lose a lot of their revenue money and so uh, that controls everything right now and so no I can't see them playing that game even I mean oh god I can't, well we know. We've talked about this on the podcast with, with Jeff before too. Like we are skeptical that there is a season, you know, in you know, writ large. Um, but certainly, non-conference just seems like dead on arrival. We're yeah. just sort of waiting for the doctor to call it. Yeah, and, and you're right. We've been trying to be pretty honest about this, and I know some people don't like to hear that, and hey, I don't like to hear it either. I'll be honest. Uh, but it is what it is, and we try to be kind of keep in front of what's going on. It's a very serious situation, and that's just reality. Um, so I, I tend to agree. I think it's not going to get played. Now, here's my question now. Let's assume that they try to play this conference-only schedule with the American either in the fall or in the spring. Because, again, I think that's one of the reasons why they did this and why I don't think it's a bad idea because it does give you that option to be flexible. If you can't play in the fall, you try to play in the spring. I don't buy, by the way, because I know some people are like, spring is undoable. It can't, it's, it, it can't happen. It's impossible. I think that's a bunch of nonsense. I think that's a lot of grandstand talk. You're going to tell me that if a TV network comes to you like, hey, we'll make room, we'll, play, you know, we'll pay you to play football in the spring, you're not going to take it? Sorry, I, I'm not buying that. So I, I think that's still an option. I'm not saying it's a great option. I'm just saying it's an option. But with that being said, do you think that the conference schedule would should stay the way it's currently is at? Like you mentioned, UCF under that scenario would be opening up at East Carolina. Or do you think that they should just blow it up and do a new conference schedule? And if so, do you have a preference on how to do it? Oh, God, no. I, I haven't even thought that, thought that far down the road. So, no. I, I mean, I wonder if you have any ideas on this. It sounds like that question you do yes because I, do. I certainly I, I certainly would not i certainly would have no idea of of starting from scratch ripping this up and, and planning out a full new schedule uh, that seems to be more needlessly complicated than just moving what you have down the road well the theory behind that is to try to again let, for example and, and the reason i bring this up because this has been a chatter now in the big 10 and you know how they're going to do the schedule um and so for example uh you could redo the schedule because one of the games is scheduled is Tulsa's schedule to come to UCF. Do you really want that? You know, or ironically enough, do you try to go more regional? So, for example, UCF would only schedule play teams from the eastern side. In other words, East Carolina, South Florida, uh, Cincinnati, stuff like that. Do you consider doing home and homes as part of a conference schedule? I know that's been floated by the Big Ten as possibly playing their own division and playing a home and home. So, in other words, Michigan would play Ohio State twice. Some people have floated that, like in the ACC, Miami would play Florida State home and home in the theory again it's more geo you know geography friendly instead of hey you know so in, in this case UCF would play South Florida in a home and home instead of having to go and play Tulsa or going playing somewhere far although their schedule is kind of unique in that regard part of the problem with all that is as you know and I think this is part of the problem that these conferences are now finding themselves into by the way they realigned and expanded where they kind of took geography for granted i.e. West Virginia mm -hmm. and the Big 12, <laughs> um, it's kind of hard to do that. 
And that's what they have found themselves into here and have put themselves in this situation where it's almost impossible to beat geography-friendly scheduling in a conference because you're so spread out. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, so I'll, I'll just toss this to you because I don't have a strong preference. I'm like you. I'm like, you know, if you want to tweak the schedule a little bit, and a lot of this too depends on how many games you want to get in. Are you going to try to get eight games in, ten games in, things like that? Uh, what's interesting, ironic, is the American has pretty much eliminated conference, the, the divisions. You know, do they try mm-hmm. to bring that back to do like a pod system to do scheduling? First of all, uh, would you be for or against a home-and-home home type of a schedule where you play a team twice? No, I would not be against that. Okay. I would not be against that. Um, would you be for or against a pod schedule where you only play certain teams uh, in your re- in a division, you break them up into pods and you play that team. So again, like, but how are the divisions breaking down? Like, are we, are, are, I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, almost. Like, I mean, getting- you could do it like ironically, like you used to do with the uh, the American Conference East and West division. The irony is, right now, you're at an odd number. That's the biggest right. problem the American has. So I don't think yeah, that's so a, don't, that's a fi- I don't think that's a really good scenario for them. They kind of needed that twelve member in hand <laughs> to make that work. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of like you as far as the Americans concerned. I don't think they have a now. I could see maybe a tweak where maybe instead of UCF playing Tulsa, could you see something where maybe UCF plays a Navy, for example? Because from a geography standpoint, going up to Uh, you know, Maryland is maybe easier than going to Tulsa, Oklahoma, for example. Mm -hmm. And and maybe you have, Mm -hmm. maybe you do some tweaks like that on the schedule. But otherwise, I don't know what else the American can do. So you're maybe you're just going to pretty much keep this conference schedule the way it is. Yeah. Although I'm sure there's people, there's UCF fans listening. Well, obviously there are, but there are people listening to you right now who said, "Wait, UCF may not have to go to Tulsa. Please, can we have that?" We'd love that. Well, this year – so, yeah, like, I mean, I'm looking at – so, Tulsa in this scenario, obviously this year, they would be scheduled to come to UCF. And let's take it from Tulsa's perspective. If you're Tulsa, do you want to come all the way to Orlando Um, right now? Now, granted, let's remember, most of these teams fly charters. It's not like they're flying commercial. Uh, But keep in mind, if you decide to do conference only, that's going to affect other sports as well. It's not just football only. I, I think it's going to be across the board. So as far as in the fall, is if they play in the fall anyway. Uh, well, and the conference only schedule. I mean, it, it, yeah, it's not only about UCF, but it really hurts the 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 the, the little guys, and that's what people you know obviously may not want to time. care about because we're so locked in on UCF. But like those games against the the the, the FAMU's and the FIU's, if we don't get those because it's all not it's all conference scheduling. That really sucks for those for those schools that need that money. So, if they keep the schedule the way it is, conference wise, UCF would open uh, at ECU. They would then host Tulsa on October third. They would then go to Memphis, big game there. Uh, you know, with a bye week, by the way. Which some people have also thrown that out there as another reason to do conference only is maybe you built in some extra bye weeks. In case, you know, somebody tests positive, maybe you get an extra week. That's been floated. Yep. I don't know how realistic that is. If you can, you know, do you give teams like multiple bye weeks to kind of work with that? Trying to, isn't, Arkan, isn't Arkansas trying to do that? Like one of those teams is trying to do that in the South. Sure. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I think every idea has been floated there. Uh, UCF would host Tulsa. They would go to Houston, uh, host Temple, host Cincinnati, go to USF. Ironically enough, Murph. I could make the argument that the UCF football schedule 
is as pretty friendly from a geography standpoint as it gets from a travel standpoint. Like their furthest trip is what? Houston? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's probably Houston. They don't go to Cincinnati. And again, I think this is one of those years again where they don't leave – Florida, I believe, after October. Correct. Again. Halloween at Houston. After that, they're in the state of Florida. They were scheduled, and still are as of now, scheduled to host FAMU mm-hmm. November 7th, host Temple November 14th, host Cincinnati November 21st, at USF November 27th. We all know that's an extra home game. <laughs> uh, let's be real. So <laughs> if you're UCF, you probably don't want that change schedule to change too much, yeah. right? Like, um, So – I think you're right. I think if they go conference only, I think it's pretty much going to be the, the basically that schedule, maybe a tweak. I could see some tweaks. Maybe Tulsa doesn't come here because it's too far. So maybe a Navy comes here instead or something. Yeah, you know, something crazy like that. I, I Maybe mm-hmm. a tweak. I don't see a drastic blow-up schedule necessarily uh, that will happen. And we'll see what the other leagues do uh, when it comes to all that. Uh, from a conference schedule standpoint. So we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, uh, one quick point before we move on. Obviously, the Ivy League kind of got a lot of it. We, we talked about this a lot last week about how they started this by canceling fall sports and moving it. Possibly they'll try to play in the spring. The Patriot League has followed. I've been told there will be two more leagues that will follow suit with an announcement this week. Uh, they're, I think they're in the smaller conferences in the Northeast. And uh, I think you would. I think there's going to be a lot of conferences that are going to do that. Now, and you know, I know Jeff's been one of them on social media, and a lot of people want to take the shots at the big league power leagues. Like, well, they're they're able to switch, turn it off. But you power leagues, what are they doing? Well, I, I think it's to, in, to put it in context, the, the leagues like the Ivy League and the Patriot League don't make money out of football. In fact, they probably lose money with football. Whereas yeah. the power conferences, and I would say even the American, lose uh, make money from football. So it's not as easy to say, all right, we're pulling the bu- we're going to pull the plug right now in July. Uh, I mean, can you imagine, Murph? I mean, but imagine if you knew you a job you make in the fall, you're making millions of dollars, uh, and I have the same job, but I'm not making millions. I'm losing money. It's a lot easier for me to quit that job than it is for someone like you to quit that job in that scenario. So. I think it's unfair to kind of point at the power fight. Like, why haven't you done what the Ivy League or the Patriot League's doing? Totally different animals. They may end up doing the same thing, but I think they're going to drag this out as long as possible to see if they can say salvage some of this. And quite frankly, there are some teams and some leagues that probably feel like they can only play in the fall because the spring could be a lot more complicated. Could be. It's going to be complicated for everyone. Yeah. Uh, this is something that, it's it's more of it's more of a win than an if right now, but but when this happens and we get moved to the spring, it's gonna be hard for everybody, and we're all gonna have to adjust, and it's gonna be hectic and manic, and a, a lot of ads are gonna lose a lot of sleep, and, and we don't know what's gonna happen. But look, we haven't had answers, firm answers on anything about anything in America for about four months now. So we just again, it's, it's one of these things where like. We sort of are, are still writing. We're still writing it out. I think we understand what the most likely scenarios are, but the fact is, is that we still don't know. And, and you know, we're, we're sort of reaching the end of our the end of the rope here, the end of the road as far as decision time in terms of fall sports. But uh, it could it, it could still go either way. But I, I just it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't look good right now. Certainly. 
exactly. It's not optimistic. Um, it uh, not, but you never know, and that's why they're going to wait it out. I don't see. I don't expect any cancellations from these leagues until uh, very late. Like I think we're where we're headed for the first. The next step is probably if things don't change and drastically improve, uh, will be a delay. Would you agree with that? That's the that's what we'll probably hear is a delay. Like they'll still try to play in yeah. the fall. They might announce a conference only schedule, but it, you know they'll. I don't think they're going to say, "All right, we're done. We're going to see you in the spring." I don't see. I don't see that happening anytime in the next uh, immediate future, anyway. No, I, no, they would they would ask for a delay, which again, you know, we talk about you know losing those non conference games in the middle of the year. Those create those non conference yeah. games then would create bye weeks, and also like, could you uh, could you finagle it where you know now we're playing you know the those pre New Year's Day bowl games, we're playing them after New Year's Day because we've created another open week to the season. Like everyone just sort of takes. Everyone sort of takes two weeks back, right? Um, and we sort of we we play into middle of January. Like, I I, I see that as being a possibility um, too. So I agree with yeah, you on that, uh, by the way. And I'm surprised nobody has brought that up as a possibility of maybe football being a, played over two semesters. Uh, to by get the way, I, yeah, and I understand that could cause a little bit of issue with with uh, with schools. But like again, like if football is still king, like they're going to want to do what's best for the football program, kind of first and. I mean, we, we know that's true because if, if it wasn't, we, we probably would have already shut down shut the season sure. down already. Right, and um, that's the difference. That's the difference between leagues like the Ivy League, the Patriot League, and leagues like the SEC, the American, the ACC. That's the difference. And and I want to double back on uh, – I was trying to guess on it's the team that wants to move its season up. It's Oklahoma. So Oklahoma is scheduled to open its really? season on September 5th. Oklahoma is actually scheduled to start on September 5th. They want to move it up to, uh, to August 29th because it would then give them an open date af- after each of its first two games. And thus, in case someone tests positive, you would have this buffer period after week right. one, and you'd have a bye week two, and then you'd have a game two, and then you'd have another bye. So they want to create this buffer. So I, I, This is the only program I've heard that, 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 that wants to do that or is considering doing that. Yeah. But – you know, if 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 we do have a non-conference season, like that's something that could be looked at as well. Uh, there there are so many possibilities and permutations here. Even though we only have like a few weeks left before the rubber still the rubber really starts meeting the road here. Um, uh, there's still so much we don't know. But it it's God, it's it's mind-boggling to even to to even speculate because it's just you know sorry we just don't know. We don't know, and not many do, and that's why you got to kind of go day by day. What we do know is we still got preseason awards coming out here and nominations. UCF's involved. Regardless, whether we, we don't know when we're going to play, but we do know once we do play who's what. Because, for example, it was uh, it's been released, announced here, that Dylan Gabriel has been named to the Davey O'Brien watch list. Richie Grant has been named to the Becknerick Award watch list, which goes to the best defensive player. Davey O'Brien's the best quarterback, obviously. Uh, and then a bunch of UCF guys, Aaron Robinson, uh, Otis Anderson, and who else? Oh, Cole Schneider. Schneider. We're all, yeah, he was part of the Phil Steele preseason All-Americans uh, team now, that, that was released I, there. I, I, don't give, I don't give the Phil – I know Phil is, is like a – you know, he's, <laughs> he does like the Bible for college football preseason mags. But I don't look at that as as I don't know is is that as illustrious as being put on a national award watch list 
I don't, I don't, I don't no, think but, so. No, uh, but you know, when you're looking for content and material to write when there's nothing going on, you'll take what you can get, right? I'm sure that's well, – <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, Eric, because usually <laughs> – usually I really wouldn't – I mean, yeah, you, you want to tweet out and, and acknowledge the guys who get on these preseason watch lists. Um, but most of this – I mean, they put so many guys on these watch lists, it's dizzying. And, you know, the, the field is going to be pared down really quickly. Um, but look, there's not a whole lot else going on. So let's do a little fun thing that I normally would not do in a normal year. Let's take the rest of the national awards. We've got quite a few left here over the next uh, week and a half or week and a week and a day left uh, and, and predict which UCS Whoa. players are probably most likely to end up being on these lists. Now, as we record on Wednesday night, July 15th, an atrocity happened earlier today. 76 running backs in the FBS level were put on the preseason watch list for the Doak Walker Award, which, not, which honors the best running back in college football. Last year, Greg McRae was on that list for UCF. 76 players this year. None of them were UCF running backs. Now, I understand that Greg McRae didn't have a great statistical year last year because he was hurt. Uh, Otis Anderson, because he does so many other things, um, really isn't classified as a running back. Ventavious Thompson just probably didn't play enough early enough to get the the stats that people like to see. But look, you can't tell me. You can't tell me there are 76 running backs in college football that are better than any that, that are better than one of UCFs. If we're all just looking at stats and that's all we care about. Then again, it sort of, it sort of goes back to my original thought of like why these preseason lists are kind of kind of dumb. I know they mean a lot to the players because it's it's you want to have that that honor, but like they're you got people that are just looking at stats and putting names on paper. And the fact that a UCF running back was not nominated today for the Doak Walker Award, uh, it's it's ridiculous. And it, it, you know, it was really I mean, if 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 among all of the awards, that was one of the ones where I thought surely UCF would be a shoe in because they've got so many weapons. But no, they were not. So who would you have picked? I, I, I probably would have picked Greg McRae. He's just the pure. He's the best pure running back. Um, Otis Anderson. I'm going to mention his name here in a minute. Uh, so he's got his own thing. He's got his own his own field really. Um, but Greg McRae should be on this list again. There's no. There's not. There are not 76 running backs in college football better than Greg McRae. It's ridiculous. Um, so this podcast probably will probably not be out before the next award is announced. The next preseason watch list is announced. That's the Blitnikoff Award uh, going to the best wide receiver in the nation. That award, uh, I know this won't mean anything to you, to those listening now, but that award's actually coming out 830 Thursday morning. Um, so certainly you'll be listening to this after that. Great. Gabe Davis was on this list last year. Um, I, I think obviously the two obvious nominees for UCF are Trey Nixon and Marlon Williams. They usually they usually select around uh, fifty to sixty wide receivers for the for the Blitnikoff Award watch list. I, I'm going to give a slight edge to Trey Nixon here, but it's kind of fifty fifty. I do think one of them makes it, but if I had to bet, I'm going to go with Trey Nixon. Um, the stats are pretty even, um, but he's been you know I, 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 it's, it's hard it's hard to say it really is it's it's splitting the hairs. But I'm going to go with Trey Nixon there for Blitnikoff. The uh, Mackey Award on the seventeenth. Uh, honors the best tight end. Uh, we we really don't have any stand-up tight ends. We have a lot of new guys that we're all really interested to see, uh, but Jake Hescock is not getting on that list. Uh, so and then we and then we have the weekend. And then we have the Jim Thorpe Award on the twentieth of uh, July. 
I, I believe uh, Richie Grant was nominated for this award last year as well. I expect him to be nominated for this award again this year, too. It's for the best defensive back in the nation. Uh, and so this covers cornerback and safety. So you should have Richie Grant on this list again. It, it would really shock me if if Allen Robinson, uh, if uh, uh, if um, Aaron Robinson is not on this list. He really should be. He's arguably UCF's best DB last year, corner or safety. Um, you really could pick a bunch of guys. I mean, even take Allen, it would have like an outside, outside, outside shot. But like Aaron Robinson, and Richie Grant should be on that list on Monday. The Allen Trophy goes to the best interior lineman. So you're basically looking at offensive linemen plus defensive tackles mostly. Uh, Cole Schneider should be a lock. Uh, Parker Boudreaux had a really good season. Did he get, is he going to get recognized? I don't know. Um, and then defensively, like, would you put Kenny Tunier on this? He's probably the lead nominee on the defensive line, but I, I don't think so. But I think Cole Schneider should definitely hear his name on the should be a lock. list. Should be a lock. Yeah. For, for that on, uh, on Tuesday, the 21st, the, uh, Nagurski award going to the best defensive player overall. Again, Richie Grant, Aaron Robinson, I'll throw in Eric Mitchell here because he's, he's, you know, he's had a, a decent season, but it's kind of just, I'm just throwing out new names, but again, like, uh, Richie Grant, Aaron Robinson, like that's your short list. They should be on this list. Uh, the July 22nd, we have the kicker awards, kickers and punters, the Ray guy and uh, Lou Groza award. Uh, I, I know apologies to, to Daniel Obarski and Andrew Osteen. I do not see either one of them on this list. Doesn't mean they're not good kickers. This probably means they did not have that great of a year last year. And, and like we see with the running backs, when you don't put up Bafo stats the year before, no one recognizes you no matter how talented you are. So that, that's probably and, a pass on. Right. And, you know, let's be honest. You got to kick a lot of field goals. You're not going to win that award by kicking extra points. That's true. This offense is too good for, for basically Daniel Barsky to get his due. That's correct. Um, and so then on Wednesday, we have a couple more awards. We have the Horning Award, which is going to the most versatile player in college football. Eric, I will bet $1,000. I will bet whatever's in my bank account, which is actually more than $1,000, I'm happy to say. Holy <laughs> Oh, I just cursed. Um, that Otis Anderson is going to be on this list. I let's leave that curse in there. Don't edit that out. That's great. Uh, Otis Anderson is definitely going to be on this list. I mean, there's there are probably aren't ten better, more versatile players in college football than Otis Anderson. Like they, they this list is probably going to have a bunch of names on it, like fifty or, fifty or more. Uh, Otis Anderson should be one of the first names that comes to mind. So yes, he didn't get looked at for the Doak Walker. He's going to get looked at for the Horning Award. There's no doubt. Uh, on that same day, Thursday, 20, the, the 23rd of July is the Werfel trophy. This goes out to the player that exhibits the combination of athletic achievement, a- academic achievement and community service. Now I don't have a really clear nominee, but that's because Jordan Johnson has graduated and Anthony Roberson has transferred. Um, those two guys were like, they, they were, they, they were the, the mantle bears for everything that was good about this program. And so now they're gone. I think we're waiting to see someone sort of fill their shoes in a very public way, very outward way. I, I don't know who that's going to be, but it's, you know, you're going to see someone emerge, but I don't think you're going to see anybody on that list because there just isn't anybody obvious. And then lastly is the Maxwell Award, the best defensive player in the nation. Uh, there were 80 players nominated last year. AK was one of them. Uh, that's on Friday, July 24th. You know, you could put Otis Anderson on this list. Certainly, Dylan Gabriel should be on this list. When you're nominating 80 players, uh, Dylan Gabriel should be on this list. I, and they probably will, they probably could leave Greg McRae and Otis Anderson off. 
uh, the wide receivers too, but like Dylan Gabriel's a lock. Um, so you've got a lot of UCF guys coming up here in the next week that we're going to see on, on preseason watch list. I guess the only thing that we can take away from this is that I hope somebody wins these awards. Maybe they aren't UCF players, but I hope someone does. Cause that means that we will have a football season preceding it. Oh, very well. Very good. You know, it, there was two things I enjoyed about that. First of all, we were talking football. Yeah. We were talking football for a change. That was number one, and then number two, you cur- you you cursing. That's I did look. This is that was that was uh. And, and look, I mean, it's it it wasn't a a Jeffrey Hakenson moment, which was just pure unadulterated joy. Yeah. Um. But that that is just that is just that is just me being me. This is this is yeah. I just that's just me being me. So. uh I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll add that out, but uh, I hope not. I hope not. Let's let's just make it simple. I mean, come on. We're all grown-ups here. Well, if you would have hung if you would have uh, been around me last Thursday, you would have heard me cuss out too. Excitement of joy when we got the news that Aaliyah White, Kira Klarkowski, and Jasmine Esparza were coming back to UCF softball in 2021. Coming up next, I'll talk to the Knights head coach, Sydney Ball Malone, about that and how 2020, a look back at the 2020 season, and really how she's Got into the sport of softball. That's all coming up. And then later, Ask Banneret. We get to ask some questions, including a tradition unlike any other returning. Sam Unger asking Brian Murphy some big baseball questions. <laughs> all that and much more on this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. And welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. Eric Lopez alongside Brian Murphy. Well, as we mentioned earlier, last uh, big news out of UCF softball last week, as senior pitcher Aaliyah White alongside center fielder Kira Klarkowski and Jasmine Esparza was announced by UCF that they will return for the 2021 season. Of course, they were seniors that uh, got the extra year of eligibility that was voted on by the D1 Council earlier this offseason. I had a chance to catch up with Coach Sydney Ball. Malone who's had a lot going on. She just gave birth to a beautiful baby boy, three kids now. Now, of course, dealing now with an expanded roster as a result. It's just about every starter returns for UCF. And a year that they were at 21-5-1, and we're in the top 25 in the mix of having a, one of those magical seasons before the season came to an abrupt end. I talked to Coach Bear about having Aaliyah, Kira, and Jasmine, three starters, three seniors, back on this team for 2021 to go along with the nucleus that they've built with some of the youngsters like Shannon Doherty, Georgia Blair, and, of course, Justine Molina, Jada Cody, and, of course, uh, on and on, G. Mancha, great deep pitching staff. Big rosters, which everybody in softball is going to deal with in 2021. I talked to Coach Ball Malone about that, and plus the flexibility that she has on her roster and her team and coming maybe – you know, kind of part of that shows with her coaching staff. And how did Coach Ball Malone get into the sport of softball and into coaching? We discuss all that right now here with Sydney Ball Malone on the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. And joining us now, of course, and uh, just finishing up her second season as the head coach at UCF, of course, was a tremendous player, uh, All American at Pacific, 
I speak of uh, Sydney Ball, who joins us. Sydney Ball Malone, Coach Bear, joining us. How you doing? I'm great, Elo. How are you? Uh, doing all right, doing all right. Obviously, some great news, some positive news, which uh, was very exciting to see uh, last week where we obviously it was announced that Leah White, Kira Klarkowski, and Jasmine Esparza would be back for the 2021 season. Just talk about those three seniors coming back and kind of that process, because I'm sure when the season came to an abrupt end, there was a lot of questions and uncertainty whether they would even be back or not. And for people that don't know, a lot of times softball players have plans after softball that they make even during the season, what was that whole like uh, process like? And when you found that they were coming back, you had to be excited. Well, definitely. Um, I know, you know, the, the obvious answer would be on the field. They, they do so much with um, Kira defensively, jazz offensively, did, did a lot of great things. And then Aaliyah in the circle. Um, but I am especially excited about, them being able to lead this program one more year um, because they, they scratched the surface last year, they got hungry. And so um, they get to use this, this pause time to reflect on what they can change and how they can keep driving this team to um, become more nationally recognized and the end goal playing in postseason as far as we can go. Yeah, it's tremendous. And, now, you know, they come back, and you've got pretty much most of the roster coming back from this past season. Uh, you're going to have the same issue that a lot of coaches are going to have, but it's a good problem is you're going to have a lot of talented players on your roster. Uh, <laughs> that, that's going to be unique, but it's a good problem to have, though, right? Oh, yeah, it's a great problem. And we, we've talked about it. It's um, We get to have these Zoom calls still, and so we've we've chatted about, look, it's, it's going to be a large roster. Travel size is going to be different. Um, it's going to be a very competitive atmosphere. Um, and so they're, they're excited to be able to continue what they, they started this past season. Um, but I said, just keep making our job more difficult because that means we're in a really good spot. Um, but it, it does. It <laughs> You kind of think of, okay, we could look like this, and then the next day we drop a new roster and it's, or a new lineup, and it's, all right, we could look completely different and still be really good. So it's a great problem to have. And I and I and I feel like with your style of coaching, seeing you now for the two seasons, you're one of those coaches that could probably actually, you know, can really uh, know how to handle a big roster. You like to use your bench. You like to use uh, matchups. You like to create competition internally to keep everybody sharp uh, and bring that internal competition to bring the most out of them. I feel like you're one of those coaches that can figure out a big roster and can actually and and, and is you know can really really adjust to it. I, I think it does play to our advantage as a coaching staff um, because we do a, job, a, a really good job of uh, not only managing them as players, but, you know, giving them the attention they need as people. Um, and so it's exciting to, to see that. And, um, we may have some travel limits, which could change some things. And um, having a large roster and leaving people at home is, is going to be a new um new situation that we're going to be dealing with. And, you know, it's, it, it's fun though. It's fun to have that, like you said, that competitive environment, it makes us all better. It keeps us. Um, I like how the Vanderbilt coach once said, um, you have to pay rent to stay here. <laughs> and so I feel like we live that out every day. Uh, and it's great for them to learn that too, for the future, because that's, that's what the workforce is like. And, so it's going to be exciting. I, I, I would 
I would be lying if I said that I'm completely ready for it because there are new challenges coming. But I do think it does play into our advantage of having our roster come back or most of our starting lineup come back from last year and then adding some additional freshmen and and whatnot this year. So it's exciting, but it, it, it is definitely something that we have to continue to learn and develop and go from, you know, each day. If you've had a chance to reflect on the 2020 season, what jumps out to you? You were 21 and five and one, uh, ranked in the top 25. Uh, you were really in the mix of having one of the best West, uh, the best West Coast trip that the program has ever had at that time, and you were getting ready to start conference. If you've had a chance to reflect, what what do you take from the 2020 season that you'll carry over uh, to 2021 and beyond? Well, I think what's neat for them is, um, I mean, our team, our, our program has always done very well. We've been strong. We've been in postseason um, prior to me even getting here. You know, we've had some big wins. But I think the big thing for our program is doing it on a consistent basis, right? And then what, once we get into regionals, um, knowing our, our, on our own that we can continue to keep going and we are supposed to be there. Um, and it's not just a, oh, we took one from this team and we took one from that team. It's they're trying to take one from us. And so, um, you know, prior to that California trip, we had won some, some good games. We had stayed in tight with some good teams, but we still, we still needed to win those games that I knew we had potential of winning, you know, player for player. We may have been better, but we just didn't have the experience or that thought process, that mindset. And so in this off time, we've really been focusing on that because California, it opened up a new beast. Um, we were put in some awesome situations, um, watching them compete after the Michigan game against UCLA. You know, it's a night game. They've got a big crowd um, and competing. I think we had an opportunity to win that game with one swing three or four times. Um, and so once they saw that they can compete with the number one team like that, um, you know, we just continue to get stronger. And then now we've realized, oh, wait a minute, we're supposed to be here. People are fearing us now. Um, so this off, this off time, we've really focused on what our mindset's going to be of, you know, not are we getting to regionals? It's okay. Are we hosting regionals? And then once we tackle that, well, who are we playing in super regionals? And, um, so they're changing their mindset in that way. And that comes with being successful. Um, you know, when I got here, we said, we're going to be successful in the classroom. We're going to be successful um, in the community, in the weight room. And then that'll all transfer onto the field. And I mean, they, our team just does such a great job in the community. Um, and we lead the pack with our, our, our program and our school in community hours, our academics, we've hit another record this last semester. Um, and so they're just, they're learning what it feels like to be on top and loving it. And then they're like, okay, we want a little bit more. Um, so it's going to be exciting to see how that all works. They're definitely not satisfied. Um, I guess as a coach, you could say having that season and then it, it, then putting a pause, getting a pause put on it. Um, it keeps them hungry. And so for us, we haven't had to motivate them. They are motivated. And so I would say that that's really the big thing that I'm seeing is they're trans. You can see them transitioning into 
we're the big dogs, and we're not just going to try to go steal games. We've got a target on our back now. And it's a group that's probably tight. I mean, you had that lengthy West Coast trip, and I remember you know we talked about it before the season, even during that. You know that this will you'll learn a lot about your team, and uh, you responded so well. You mentioned you beat Michigan up in, at UCLA. Shotpockers a tremendous base running, scoring to the winning run there to beat the Michigan there. You beat. Uh, you know, Long Beach State, you beat San Diego State, and then you ended the season on a 14 nothing run, uh, winning at Northridge and then beating Fullerton up, getting revenge for their er- the earlier matchup and beat them at their place 7 nothing. So it felt like from the outside that this team was really clicking and together, maybe that bond that you've talked about since the day you got here. Oh, yeah. That, that trip really made it come out, right? We um, rented two houses on the beach, and you think, oh, that's so cool, but you know, you've got about a party of 33 in two houses for a week. Um, you're around each other a lot. <laughs> so, um, but it, it was, I mean, they just loved it. They wanted more of it. And, um, you know, the winning just was like the cherry on top, but it's like you said, they're a close team. Um, it's a very unique situation in that they, they want differences within our team. Um, they love them. They thrive off of them. And, they want people to bring different topics to the table and they, they love the, the non judge, the judge free zone. And, um, they think that's, that's what makes us great. And I truly believe in it too. And of course your offense this year hit three ten offensively. You were setting records offensively. You're on pace, uh, scoring runs in bunches. Shannon Doherty, a freshman, hitting four forty three to lead your team. Carissa Ornelas in her second year, making a big jump, hitting three eighty seven. Uh, Jules Wilson hitting three twenty one. Uh, Justine Molina, who you know well from Boise State, coming in hitting three nineteen. Jada Cody, who had a big West Coast trip, three fifteen average. Georgia Blair, three oh two. Just talk about your offense in year two and making that big jump from year one to year two. Uh, were you even surprised by the big jump that your offense did? Because it was a learning curve that first season, and it seemed like all the players were on the same page in year two, and, man, it took off. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I don't even know if those numbers are as true to what we were doing. Um, that that week in California, we talked about how successful it was, but we prepared for, ladies, we're going to strike out a lot this weekend. They, they we're going to strike out a lot this week, and we may strike out three times in a game and still be successful and win the game uh, because we faced like five All-Americans um, that week um, throughout their careers. And so I think those numbers could probably be even higher, which is crazy, but um, – I think our strikeouts doubled just in that week uh, alone for facing some of those pitchers. But I'll go back to um, I've I've always had a pitching background, and so having success offensively um, in 2018 um, with the team that I coached, it it kind of like brought to light of I look at offense from the pitcher standpoint. And so it's, it's not a ton of technical stuff, so to speak. I mean, we do focus on those things. And so coming in last year, um, you know, I, I, I got to witness what that looked like in, in years past for myself of transitioning the, the hitting mentality and the mindset. And so coming in last year, it wasn't, it wasn't a race, you know, it wasn't, I told them it's going to take time. And for the seniors, we didn't try to touch them too much as like, trying to change too much. It was, okay, how can we be most prepared for the pitchers we're going to face this week? 
Um, but for those juniors, sophomores and freshmen, it was, all right, we're going to put you into this and you, you may see more results in the next, you know, the next couple of years. Um, so to see it happen, that just adds the buy-in from the team, um, which is awesome. But I mean, like you said, there were some surprises, Justine Molina, um, since I recruited her back when she was a sophomore, she was my defensive specialist. And all of a sudden she comes out and is player of the week in her first week and out hitting 500 with 10 RBI. And I'm thinking, and this is my defensive player. What the heck? But hitting's contagious. And I think when you talk about Georgia Blair and Jada Cody and Justine, and I mean, you mentioned a lot of names, Jules, Shannon, and Carissa. I mean, if one's not on, the other one's on, and then they're challenging each other because they're competitive and they want to compete and perform for their team. So, um, but I also think it has a lot to do with our great pitching staff. You know, they see live pitching almost every day from two people from our, off of our team. And we kind of have a, like a rotation going. So the better you're pitching, the better your hitters get to face. And then, which makes sense that they would have the success that they had. And I am excited. You know, we've got some successful freshmen and then having the experience that our, um, team had this past year offensively they know now you know it it works and we're going to continue to keep doing it and I think they're excited to see the mindset that they've built in the last for some of them two years um, to bring to this next year you mentioned in an interview you did recently where you brought Justine Molina obviously and G Mancha You, you knew them from Boise State uh, they were a big part of their your success there in turning around that program. But you even talked about bringing in players like them, like that there was the elephant in the room that, you know, when you bring in a player <laughs> transfer that, hey, that could cause some issues internally and things. And you said it didn't, that the veteran players, the leadership, they took them in. Was that the turning point for you where you saw that, hey, the culture that we've built here that I've been telling the players about, it, that that's the moment where I knew it was gonna it was working because it, there was no issues. I mean that could have easily caused some issues, but it didn't at all. It was all embraced and it fit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know it, it. The turning point, like you said, definitely. And when did I notice it? I would say um, probably at the end of fall. Uh, you know, and G and Justine and Georgia. I mean, they all had great years this year, and probably set to be one of their best years of their careers, those three transfers. Um, and they'll say it's because they felt comfortable here. They, they just got to play. They didn't have to worry about, you know, the, the stuff that's not going to help us win. And that goes back to the, our leaders, those three girls that are coming back, um, the three young ladies, Jazz, Kira, and Aaliyah, um, you know, they, they helped a lot with that transition and that change of, some of our transfers coming in. And then I'm not even mentioning um, Aubrey Johnson, who was a huge leader and played a huge role um, in all of that. And, and, you know, fortunately, but unfortunately she's in grad school, had done a great job to get into the grad school that she's in and um, her pre- previous commitment. She couldn't, she couldn't back down on that because she had been working on it since last fall. So um those four really played a huge role in, look, it's going to help our our team win. This is where we want to be. We may not like it every day. You know, some of them are going to come and take our spots, but if it's going to bring this program to the level we want it to be, I'd rather be a part of that. And they did such a good job of reminding the freshmen and the sophomores of, you know, there's people when playing time comes about, 
lots of problems can occur. And we have a huge um, philosophy in, and you'll hear the girls say it, that all roles may not be equal, but they all have equal value. And we talk a lot about our bench. We have an All-American bench. And if you come and watch one game, you know exactly who those All-Americans are. And our team will talk about we need to travel those people. They may not even get into the game, but their value of who they are for us is so important. Um, And so when I started to hear our girls talking and using that language um, in our pre-practice meetings without the coaches um, initiating it, that's when I thought, okay, we've got something special here. And it's almost scary of, all right, I got to be on my game to be able to lead this because they're, they're passing me up with this wisdom. (laughs) And so, (laughs) um, but I, I do think that, you know, once, once you start to have that and people feel good and they feel valued, um, you get the best out of them. And we have, you know, some people are performing on the field. Some people are performing in the classroom. Some people are just amazing people on our team that do such great things, not only in the community, but for our community, our group. So um, it's fun to see. And that can kind of sound like a a little bit cheesy, I guess. Um, But we're living it and loving it and buying into it. So I've, I want to share it with everybody because it's working for us. Yeah, it really is. And and it really showed in your pitching staff with G coming in, winning six games. You had, obviously, Aaliyah leading the way. 11 wins was among the top leaders in the nation in wins and shutouts at the time. Uh, Bree was having a great year with a 179 ERA. Just talk about the pitching staff as a whole, a 2.32 ERA as a staff, and your overall thoughts because it looked like they were clicking towards the end. I mentioned two shutouts to end the year, and Aaliyah in particular in that West Coast trip. She was coming out of the bullpen and starting uh, and pitched a great game, gave you a shot to beat UCLA. Yeah. Well, you know, they say it starts in the circle, and it truly does. I mean, what we talk about, all roles having equal value. Um, when I got here in 2018, Aaliyah shook my hand and said, I need help. And at first, I thought that was like, oh, she's looking for pitching help. And I was like, well, she's really good. I don't know what she's talking about. No, she needed other players because she knew that it's not a one-man show anymore, you know, these days with the hitters that we have or a one woman show. I'm sorry. Um, and so she thrives off of having that leadership or that, that staff and they are the leadership on the field. Um, it starts with them, you know, the, the, the three headed monster of Bree, G and Aaliyah. Um, but then we also have three other pitchers in the bullpen pushing them every day. You had Kiana, you had Maddie Davis, and then you had Cassidy Kenjemi who, those three were, they're probably one of our, our hardest workers on the team. And so if they're not keeping up with those three, um, they're not who they are today. Um, but it's awesome to see that you have a transfer in Gianna Mancha coming in and uh, Bree and Gianna and Aaliyah are awesome friends. You know, G couldn't have been more excited that Aaliyah was coming back this year. Um, and Aaliyah, the same with the other two. So it's exciting to see uh, how how they understand that they need each other to be successful individually and as a group. Because I think back to my playing days, I wanted the ball all the time. And we, te- we talk about that, you guys. We want you all to have the ball. We want you all to think about having the ball. But we're also going to be smart about who we're matching up with who and when we're bringing them in. 
And like you said, now they can play different roles. Aaliyah was preparing to be a closer, to be a starter, whatever we needed to do, um, because we were preparing to get as far into the the tournament as we could. So um, it's exciting to see how they, they grew and fed off of each other, and they still do, and that three-headed monster gets to return. And uh, as a coach, when you've got pitching, um, the other stuff's not easy, but it makes it more fun, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. to be able to uh, put it all together. And how important was it? You met Aaliyah, and you mentioned when you came in, she's had individual success at the time. And that you know that could be tricky at times because you obviously offer things where you feel that she could do better. You know, It could have been easy for her to say, well, wait a minute, what I've been doing has been successful. But she was very willing to listen and adapt to what, and, and listen to what you were teaching her and what things she could do to make her better, which was working. Just talk about it because I, I would assume that helped too with the rest of the staff and, and adapt. And uh, really, I think she was a better pitcher the last time we saw her than she was when you first met her. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, the willingness to learn and to change things. Um, it's, we talk about it a lot as being okay with showing your vulnerability in front of people. And I think that that has a lot to do with it. Um, but I mean, it's like you said, we have, we just have a great group of Kendra and I, um, we work very well together. Kendra manages the bullpen day to day. Um, but again, that's, that's, that's my love and my passion and is what I've always done. So I'm going to have a very close eye on it, obviously. Um, but we work so well together and we bounce ideas off of each other. And then we make sure that the terminology is similar and we're not confusing people, right? Like we're not, we're not trying to battle to show who has the most knowledge of pitching. It's let's work together so we can get this um, to our, our, our best product to put out on the field. Um, but the willingness to learn the vulnerability, you know, that those things are huge when it comes to, team dynamics, but then even when we're learning and trying to develop better on the field. So I would say that had a lot to do with it. Um, but I think too, you know, you have an ace in Gianna Mancha an ace in Aaliyah White. And now you, that was, I mean, I was very concerned of, okay, we're going to bring these people in Justine Molina and Aubrey Johnson, like how are, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about this openly and freely because that's how we approached it. We didn't hide from it. We had the uncomfortable conversation. And, I mean, we, I told the, the girls that transferred from Boise, of, look, you're going to have it tough. I'm not going to be easy on you. This team needs to see that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride you a bit because we can't have anybody saying those are my favorite kids. And we just talked about it. We, we talked about it in groups. We prepared for it. And we basically said that in order for this to work, we have to be mature. Um, so all those pieces together, I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but all those pieces together um, is where we are. And we'll, we'll come up with other situations where we're going to have to think about it. But I think being open and honest and having the tough conversation is why we're at where we're at as a team. Yeah, no, I think that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, for her, her standpoint, like I said, she was having a great year. I mean, who knows what it would have ended yeah. up, but I think she was going to be in the mix for pitcher of the year and, and was going to earn a lot of accolades the way she was throwing uh, when the season shut down. Uh, we're speaking with Cindy Ball Malone uh, here on the Coach Bear. And, uh, you know, like I said, I think it's a credit because she is definitely a better pitcher 
today than she'd been prior to your arrival. And I think it's a credit to both of you to make it work. And uh, and really, I think, you know, and learning about each other, how, how long did it take you to kind of feel comfortable with the players you inherited? Because when you got here, you had an inherited roster. There's a learning curve of knowing what they're like and how each player ticks. Everybody's different. Uh, how long did it take you to adapt and kind of feel comfortable with, hey, I know these people a little bit better now and, and you know, and things like that? Yeah, well, I'd have to, I think one of the smartest decisions that I made and I'm, um, is keeping Tiffany. Um, you know, sometimes it's tough to, uh, coach Jordan, sorry, Tiffany Jordan. Um, it's tough to think, okay, I'm going to keep a coach from the previous staff and feel like the loyalty and, you know, they're going to go in that direction. But she also gave me a lot of insight into, what the kids have done, what, you know, who they are, um, and what they, what they've done from, you know, how they work, how they like to hear things, what they're more receptive to. Um, and Tiffany helped me so much, um, with that. And she did a great job too of jumping on board. I mean, I'm very different, um, from coach Gillespie and that it's not saying one's right or one's wrong. It's just, and we talked about that, right? Like, I'm me. I'm not going to be able to be the previous coach. And, and that's okay. No one's wrong. Um, it's just it, that that's life. You know, you, you have to be your best self. And that means I can't pretend to be somebody else. Um, so I think that really helped with the transition. And then the other thing is just kind of sitting back and observing. You know, if you meet me, I'm probably somebody that looks like I – I uh, just jump at things and I go, but I do a lot of observing and there's times where people may think I'm mad. I'm a thinker. I uh, look at things and see things. And I mean, my husband told me one time, like you have this look on your face, like you're so mad. And I said, really, I'm just thinking, I don't (laughs) know what you're talking about. Right. And so it, it like him telling me that really helped me in my coaching because I realize I'm always going up there in the brain. And so just watching and observing and being able to adapt to each of the different types of learners, um, I wouldn't say it took too long, but you know, you pick the people that you feel you can connect with the most, the people that have the mic on the team, and then you start to reach out to everybody that way. Um, and I mean, we had the bumps, our bumps in the road last year, but all in all, it was, again, one of the stepping stones to why the season is the way it is this year, because, you know, some of those um, players on the team last year that maybe aren't on the team this year, they could have done something or said something that where people wouldn't listen to us. And they did it. They were very respectful. They worked hard um, and they, they did well under different management, so to, so to speak. And, you know, it's it's funny being able to talk about this openly, but this happens. This is just like things in the workforce, like I said. And so we talked about it a lot. And um, I think all of those things combined really helped with the easy transition. But again, it starts in the circle. Aaliyah, um, she allowed me to push her. She allowed Coach Kendra to push her. Um, she allowed us to make her feel uncomfortable at times. There were some tears in the bullpen. Um, but she's just such a great person and a great kid and a great competitor. Uh, and so that allowed for us to show how, you know, we're going to push you through these things and then you go and have that success on the field. And then other people see that and then they want a piece of it. Um, 
So I wouldn't say it was something that we did really fast, but I definitely pinch myself and I'm kind of looking for something to, you know, is, is the sky going to fall here? Because why is this, this going so quickly and why are things feeling so great? And why do I feel so comfortable? Um, and it's okay to, you know, have success and feel that way. But, um, I've learned to not look for the bad stuff. I've learned to know that each adversity that we face, is just going to make us even better. And so we enjoy building through that adversity as a team. You mentioned, of course, Coach Jordan, Tiffany Jordan. She was a Hall of Fame player at, at Youngstown State. She's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Kendra, of course, you mentioned Kendra Kirkhoff, was an All-American at North Carolina, two-way player, played outfield and pitchers. Talk about your staff because, uh, and I, you know, there's a lot of versatility within your staff. Like, yeah, you know, you mentioned Kendra helps you in the bullpen, but in the, she could help you out on offense. Tiffany obviously runs the defense, but there's a lot of flexibility where you all seem to be kind of like she can chip in on any situation. Yeah. There's no like, well, you're only doing this and there's that. There's a lot of a, a, a flexibility there. And the three of you have had success as a player, which I would imagine is, is a fascinating deal where all three of you know what it's like to be a player and a coach. Yeah. Well, it's it's just like you said, and I didn't even realize it until you just said it, that we are definitely what you would see our players out on the field. Our players are very versatile and dynamic and can play different positions and do different things. And when you said that, I was like, wow, we're, we're definitely a representation of what we want our team to be. Um, so it, it is exciting. And I think, too, it was going to get tested had um, our season not ended because I was going to go out on maternity leave um, and Kendra and Tiffany and um, coach Bobby, they were going to have to run it, you know? And so uh, to see that and to hear what you're talking about, um, I, I didn't have any stresses of, Oh, they're not going to be able to do it because I knew that they were fully capable of, managing all those pieces because we do it on a day-to-day basis. All of us throw live, all of us can hit. Um, like you said, we've all had great playing careers and have been successful. And um, I'd like to say that I planned that, but um, I think it was just happenstance. It just kind of happened and created. And it just so happens we are also pretty good friends off the field. And so it's like you said, I, we, we talk about it a lot. We look at each other a lot of, you know, it, it goes from the top down. And so if we don't do and if we don't represent what we expect the team to do, um, we're not going to get anywhere. So I definitely uh, believe that our coaching staff is a huge part in why things are the way they are. And um, they want more of it, too. And we're all learning and we all love to change things up a little bit, but then also understand that we need to keep things the same. So they make me better for sure. And I know that they'll tell you, I, uh, I push them to the limits and then, and they might think I'm crazy sometimes. Um, but then afterwards it, they, they come back and they're like, Oh, I'm so glad we did that. And so as a head coach, that's all you can ask for. I mean, we, we may not have all the answers. I can say we're not all, we, we don't have all the technological skills that some of our other schools have, but, um, we know what we're good at and where we rock it. And, um, you know, it's, it's a great group. So I kind of went around your question, Elo, but I think <laughs> just in answering that we're just great people and you have to, you have to, you can be frustrated with the people you work with, but being able to love them and have fun with them and 
be able, being able to lose with them and win with them. And there's so many things that go along with that. And, um, this job allows us to kind of blend our lives and our work together. And, and so it's fun to be able to trust and rely on a staff at being a head coach. Cause that's one of your biggest fears as a head coach is the loyalty piece. And I would imagine that kind of uh, reflects to the players too. They could notice that seeing that you're all get along, you're all tight. You're all kind of on the same page. You're all versatile. Uh, and I would imagine that gives the players a lot of confidence in, in, when they step on the field, that the same way that you know everybody's kind of it's all a glue here. There's no like, well, do I go to this person or not? It's pretty much uh, everybody's on the same page. So I would imagine that has to help the players too from a, a from a sta- that standpoint. Oh yes, definitely. Then, and they verbalize that too, right? Um, it's so important as a coaching staff. If we all agree, we're not going to get better, and we need to understand that. But when we walk out the door we all agree on what we've, what we've decided, even if it's not something that, you know, I agreed on or coach, coach Tiff agreed on or coach Kendra agreed on. But once we walk out that door, we're a united front. And um, they talk about how they love how the message is very simple and clear. And it's, it's um, supported by all of us. And so to hear the girls even talk about that is, it makes us feel good about what we do. It's not always easy. Um, we might have a 15 minute meeting that lasts four hours, right. To get the answer. But, um, I like that we're all willing to put that effort and time into it because we understand how important it is. What got you interested in playing softball growing up and then eventually coaching? You ended up playing at Pacific where you, you really put the program on the map. You were a two time all American, led them within one win of the women's college world series. But what got you interested in playing softball growing up? Uh, and then eventually getting into coaching after you were done playing. Yeah, so my mom and aunt played softball. And when they played, they actually, um, my mom was a great pitcher. She was a slingshot pitcher. So meaning she didn't go around in the full windmill, but could throw, I mean, up into the 50 miles, up into the 50s, just slingshotting it in there. Um, and so they put me into T-ball. They were my coaches. Um, and I was horrible. Elo, I was the worst player on the team. Um, I don't know how you're bad at T-ball, but I was. (laughs) And then the next year, um, I talk about this with our team, but, uh, we had 13 players on the team and you couldn't sit two innings in a row. And I was that player that sat every other inning. I was the 13th on the, on, in the lineup. Um, but I, for some reason loved it and it really had to do with being able to connect with my mom and my aunt and my aunt played fast pitch, um, for the sheriff's department and slow pitch for the sheriff's department. So I would travel around with her and she'd play in the, um, Olympics, the sheriff's and police Olympics. And so I'd get to travel around with her and watch her play. And she was, her name, um, is Cindy. So I, you know, I always looked up to her too, cause I was named after her. And, uh, so it was fun to, be able to have that, that relationship and be able to watch her play with some of these great players and want to play like her. Um, and so that's, that's really why I got into it. Um, I was probably better at basketball and volleyball naturally, but I just love softball. I loved the fact that, you know, you could work so hard and 
um, nothing would come, come of it on the field. And then there were days where it was just like one thing would click and you'd win the game over it. And just that whole part of it was amazing. And then all the relationships that you develop along the way. Um, but you know, it's funny how everything kind of comes together because, um, I'd be lying to you if I said my dream school was university of the Pacific when I was younger, it was, um, Stanford and, I just couldn't get the test score to get in. And uh, that was like, I remember the heartbreaker of getting the call from John Rittman of my test score is not, you know, not going to be able to be put me in a position to be recruited by Stanford. And so um, I went on my visit to university of the Pacific coach Colsey um, came out and I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be by the beach, the ocean It's going to be awesome. Stockton, California is not close to the beach. <laughs> um, little did I know, but I fell in love with it and I loved the people, um, the team. I just, I mean, I, those are my, some of my greatest, uh, friends still to this day. We have alumni zoom calls now this, um, this time has like brought us back together and sometimes it's like we never left each other. So, um, but what's funny about that is I got recruited and by coach Colsey and um, Coach Tar came on staff the fall of my freshman year. So we had been there for a couple of weeks, and then here comes Coach Tar. And I'm, you know, I remember seeing her and thinking, "Wow, she's like my age. What? How is she going to coach me?" And she's the biggest reason why I'm still in this game. Like the way she talked about the game, her passion for the game. I just wanted to learn so much, and so and she. I mean, I still to this day talk to her about anything. She's my mentor, um, my friend. And, you know, sometimes I get to share insight with her and that makes me really excited because she's one of the smartest people I know. Um, but she's the reason why I wanted to get into coaching. I mean, I, Coach Colsey gave me the opportunity um, to be a grad assistant because at my time at Pacific, we never had a pitching coach. And so I think that, some people can say, Oh, wow. Imagine what you would do if you had a pitching coach there. And I think coach Char says it the best of, I was a person that needed to figure it out on my own. And that's why I'm a coach today, I believe. Um, and yeah, so it, it's crazy. Um, but I think, you know, being coach Colsey always giving me the opportunity and not always giving me the answer. And sometimes that could have been frustrating, but I mean, wow, they're thinking that we were little university of the Pacific. I think we were 4,000 students, all three schools combined together. And we were one game away from the world series. Um, it's amazing to think that we carried that team so far. Um, but being able to learn and, um, go through the game with coach stars has been huge. And, um, we had, we had a lot of success and I, I didn't realize it's funny because I was just talking to one of um, the players that I got to coach who I consider a friend now at Pacific Gina Carbonado, who's the head coach at Santa Clara. Um, we were both all Americans at Pacific and we were talking about uh, how we didn't even know if we were playing every day. Like I remember going up to coach before we played Sac State. And I said, coach, the pitchers want to know who's pitching. 
Um, and he was talking to the other head coach and the head coach goes, we know you're pitching. I don't know why you don't. <laughs> and it was just something like you didn't just expect to have the ball. You, you, you worked for it. Right. And Gina Carbonado was one of the best players to play at Pacific, a three time all American. And I remember coach Tar going up to her and asking her, her first game was played in Baylor. And we asked her, or coach Tar asked her, so where do you think you're going to be in the lineup? And Gina says, I just hope I'm playing. <laughs> and coach Tar and I just giggled because she was leading off and she ended up being a first team all American that year. And she just was hoping she was in the lineup. So, I mean, it just, those memories and, you know, the, those are the reasons why, um, I still love the game. And I mean, it's definitely gotten, uh, very interesting how I wouldn't want to be a pitcher these days, I think, because they have way <laughs> too much information, um, the hitters and they, they get to see too much. And it's, I just, I, I mean, we probably would be successful playing now, but it's fun to see where the game has gone. It's, it's awesome to see how, how the game has just spread so much and um, to see who's coaching in it and all of that. So it's, it's been a huge part of who I am and what I am. And it's fun to see that I can still thrive right now, not having softball. So um, I miss it. We, we get a chance to watch any type of softball on TV right now. We're doing it, but um, it's not, it's, it's definitely not who I am. It's it's just what I do, but I, gosh, I really love what I do. How would uh, Cindy Ball, the player, get along with Coach Bear if they were in the same room? How would, how are they <laughs> same? How are they the same? How are they differ? How would that go? I would definitely be the kid that was in the office a lot. I would, um, so there's, there's players that I love so much that I'm like, they just frustrate me, right? Yeah. And I'll even tell them, like, you could grind my gears, girl, but you were so darn good and you you pushed me to be a better coach. I think I would have been that player because I remember always getting yelled at by Coach Colsey to be quiet. You know, we're, we're at a restaurant and I'm like trying to be loud and have fun with my friends. And, um, and I was very stubborn on the field, um, but I also, I'd like to think it was competitive, uh, but I was definitely stubborn. Um, so I, I, I would have to uh, coach coach that person up and probably have weekly meetings with them. Um, but then, I mean, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I would give them the ball because I love to compete, and I love to compete with my teammates. Yeah, definitely competed. And, you know, we, I got a chance to talk to John Rittman in person this year because you got to host him. It was a big, big one of the highlights of the 2020 season across the country. All eyes were on our, on our tournament the opening weekend because Clemson, first weekend as a softball program, John Rittman starting up that program. And you go way back with him. He was recruiting you back in the days when it was you and Jessica Mendoza, your friend, who was your catcher at the time back in high school. And he <laughs> and he talked to me after the game, after they played their first game, and he was talking about, yeah, you know, she couldn't make it into Stanford and she kind of took out her frustrations on us when we played because you beat him in 99 and you shut him out in 01 to force the if necessary game in the regional championship. Just kind of unique to go that full circle with Coach Rittman to help him out here all these years later as he's helping out the Clemson program and help him be a part of history. Oh, you know, it's funny, Elo. You talk about full circle. Um, when I was having our baby in April, the anesthesiologist comes up to me and she says, 
I know you. And I said, really? And she pulls up a picture. She's a huge Clemson fan. She took a picture of me and John Rittman at the plate because we gave them a little, um, yep. a little gift for their first weekend. And she showed me a picture of us on her phone. And this is a woman I had never met before, never seen before. And I thought, now that is funny. It definitely calmed the, the whole thing of having a baby. But full circle, that, that was one of the faces I got to look at in the <laughs> delivery room, which is funny. Wow. Wow. That is yeah. where the odds of that. Uh, <laughs> that. That's kind of wild. But, I mean, that, 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 what was that like? Because you're facing Stanford. You have to go through them. They were a great team back then. Of course, Mendoza's there. Uh, Ramona Shelburne, who's also now an ESPN. She was on that team. Jessica Allister. It was a loaded team. They had a, an assistant uh, named Lonnie Alameda. I mean, it's kind of wild if you think back <laughs> 20 years ago, that 01, because I talked to Coach Rittman about that 01 regional. I mean, that that's it's one of the wildest regionals. That was the first time they got to a men's college world series. I know that had to be painful at the time, but at the same time, I mean, to take Pacific to that level to begin with is extraordinary. Yeah. Now there's more names in there too, because you got Heather as our coach, yeah. Jessica Allister was catching for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there it, it's crazy to think but yeah it's that was a year um that t- that year taught me so much because we had a team that was that did not get to go to regionals the year before um we it was when we had only 48 teams um go and we were probably like the 50th team when it came to RPI and everything else and so we sat out that year and watched games from our couch and we thought we're not going to do this again um and so that team, we actually, we practiced. That was before the rule of in the fall where you couldn't travel. Um, we were going to travel to Washington and play at Washington for the fall in a tournament. And um, so our team practiced on our own because we couldn't practice with coaches. And that's where I say this team reminds me a lot of the team I played on that is actually that entire team is in the Hall of Fame. Um, and that we just wanted it so bad and we followed the guidance of our coaches and when our coaches weren't there, we were doing it exactly the way they would want us to. And I truly believe that this group is, is that if not more. That, that's a, that's a high praise. Cause yeah, that you had a great group there. The 50 wins you mentioned in your hall of fame, your number is retired uh, there. Um, and it, what was it like? I mean, you faced Jessica Mendoza throughout her career. She's now a national baseball broadcaster. I don't know if you're tight, you know, you're, you're tight, you're close friends. I don't think you're close enough to the point where you're going to wake up in like, you know, five in the morning to watch her do, you know, Korean baseball broadcast like she's had to been doing re- recently. But what has that been like to follow, see her and a friend? And I know she spoke to you, to you all recently, uh, uh, during this uh, break here, but what's it like to see her and accomplish all the things she's accomplished away from softball uh, on such a national uh, level? Yeah, it, I mean, it's awesome. It's it's so fun to be able to see. I mean, Jess and I started out competing against each other. We played for two different cities um, in Little League or in all-star travel ball type deal. Um, and so we played against each other. And then when we played in high school together is when we became very close. Um, but to see what she's done, not only for our sport, but for women in sports is it's, it's something to be so, I'm so proud of her and, um, love that it's an example that's super close to me that I can share with our team. 
Um, I mean, for them to be able to hear Jessica talk on that Zoom call, um, and I know one of our players in particular wants to do exactly what Jess does. Um, so just just to be able to have that in your life and then also see her as a human being. I mean, she's a mother, and um, we both are mothers of boys, and ironically, both of our husbands are good friends. They were friends before we even met them. So um, it's funny how that kind of, again, a full circle, it all goes about, but um, what it, it's just amazing to be able to see a woman do what she does. And, um, you know, some people are haters on it and she just does such a good job of representing it and being okay with it. You got to wipe, you know, brush it off and keep going. And she's shown that she's supposed to be there because she's thrived in the environment and, um, such a great advocate for women and our sport and women in sport. Yeah. I mean, did you think she would turn out to be the player that she was when you were like, you know, knowing her in high school back in the day? I mean, uh, I mean, that had to be unique there. Next thing you know, you're facing her in college all the time. You're like, golly, and I, you know, you faced her in 99, oh. you faced her in 01. Uh, and you had success with her. I mean, you beat him a couple times, on, but she also had success against you. So, I mean, it kind of, you know, worked yeah. out that way. But that had to be unique to watch her grow and develop to the player that she was. Well, I'll tell you this, Elo. Um, don't think that you can just use, like, a waste pitch or a setup <laughs> pitch to Jessica Mendoza. Those are the ones she hit. She is the best bad ball hitter I know. I mean, and there'll be times that we'll meet afterwards and she'll say, yeah, that, that hit made the highlight video. And I suggest I was literally just trying to set up. I threw a ball over your head and you hit a home run. She's like, yeah, isn't that funny? And I'm like, I don't think that's funny, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's, that's just who she is. Right. So, um, yeah, but as a player, uh, I remember we were talking in high school and we we're going for our team. Our high school team was very, very good. And they had all of the returning starters coming back. And here we are, two freshmen thinking, how are we going to make this varsity team? And I was not a full-time pitcher back then. I was um, more of a, I played first place, I, I caught, I, I played short a little bit, played outfield, and I could pitch. But I was super wild. I never had my timing down and things like that. And Jessica was a shortstop. And the only two positions that were open for the high school were pitcher and catcher. And Jessica hadn't pitched. So I thought, okay, well, we were talking like, okay, I'll go out for pitching and you go out for catching. We should be able to make the team. Um, and that's how that all came about and why I became the pitcher that I was because um, of our high school coach, Darwin Tolzien. He was the most amazing man, amazing coach. He taught me so much and, I just could not get enough practicing pitching because it started to, you know, finally click for me. Um, and just behind the plate, I love her. Um, I'd rather have her in center field. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I did always know she was going to be that great player. Like she was, she was also one of those that needed to grow into her body. She had these long limbs. She's running around. Right. And, um, I remember one time she hit this ball and she was running so fast that she couldn't stop. She just kept going and she got a home run on maybe a ball that maybe I get a double off of. Right. I think it was in front of them almost. Um, but she was just that player that could do some amazing things and really in clutch situations. 
And I think that that just goes back to her hard work. I mean, she, she worked so hard on the little things and hit every day, hit at, hit at, we would stay and I'd pitch to her and she would hit and coach Tolzine would uh, pitch to us and we'd hit some more and then she'd go to the cages and hit. And then we'd go to her, a friend's house and hit in the backyard. And I mean, we just, we were gym rats. We couldn't get enough of it, but, um, she definitely took it to the next level as far as being able to compete on the highest, uh, you know, the highest stage. And you could see that from, you know, the first time she hit the field, whenever I met her, um, it always came down to her being up with two outs, you know, in that little all-star game. And she'd rip this ball at me at first base and it'd probably bounce off my leg or whatnot. But, um, she was always that type of player and, could do so many things. Yeah, she's uh, done a lot of could do many things, and has done some great things uh, there, and, and it's done pretty well for herself. You've done pretty well for yourself uh, as well. And you know, last question here. Now, you're obviously you're a mom of three. Now, you mentioned it. You, you got a new new member on the in the household there, so you're uh, that's getting used to, which I know it's enjoyment. But just take us through it now. I know there's some uncertainty uh, with things going on with fall and everything like that. So just tell us a little bit now. What's What's next for you and the team here? And obviously, uh, how's the newest member of the team uh, doing? Yeah. Well, um, his name is Kaysen, and he is awesome. He's um, going to be three months this week, and he he's just an awesome baby. That it, It's just a reminder of, you know, when times are tough, there's still blessings in, in the world today. And so I... This time, although it was very hard to step away from the field for a little bit with the team, um, it's giving me a time, a lot of time to be a mom. And I think that's one of my greatest qualities of a coach is that I'm a mom and I love being a mom. And so, um, he's just, he's just an awesome little addition to our family. And I can't say little cause the kid eats a lot and he's already in six month clothes, but, um, <laughs> He's, he's quite a big boy, but, um, for the team, you know, we're, I'd love to say we're going to be back right away and, you know, get together and keep doing what we're doing, but we're going to be smart. I mean, this game's important. This team's important, but, um, staying safe and healthy is important. And especially not just for us, but for the entire nation and world. And so, um, we're going to take it, you know, step by step and some of our, um, administrators have said it the best that, you know, you're, you're building the plane while you're on it. And we're, we're kind of just taking their, their lead and running with it. And, um, I wish I could have more answers of what that looks like, but when, when it's time for us to come back together, they're going to be ready. They've stayed connected. They're training on their own. Um, and they're taking a break and being human beings, which I think has made it even more impactful because we're getting to, learn and love each other, not just for our backhand or our curveball or our speed or our power, but because of who we are. So it, it'll, it'll start off slow, but I, I believe that we're going to be right where we were before because they're playing for more than just this current team. They're playing for the players that couldn't return from last year. They're playing uh, for the what ifs of last year. So it's going to be exciting to see, um, this group and and what they look like and what they bring. Yeah, no, we uh, we're counting down the days. We're hopeful to see you all out there 
real soon. But in the meantime, the good thing is you get to spend time with your family, and that's a, that's a big that's the most important thing there, Coach. Uh, uh, Coach, thanks so much for taking the time during this time. Congrats, obviously, uh, on, on the family doing well and healthy. I'm glad everything worked out there and uh, obviously the success to this point. Uh, we'll catch up soon, hopefully, uh, and hopefully soon in person. Awesome. Thank you, Elo, for having me. And thanks to Coach Bear for uh, joining us there, taking some time there and uh, great in-depth stuff. Uh, we talked softball there. Murph, I know you weren't shocked at me and Coach Bear talked for a while softball there. I mean, I felt good. I, I got to be honest. It felt good. I felt really good. It was a long. It's been a long time coming. No, and there, there, you are. That's that's you and your, <laughs> that's you and your hot zone, man. That's that's a fastball. Oh, that's good. literally a fastball on the tee, just waiting for you to knock it out. Fifty-five, fifty-five minutes. It's pretty I good. Mean, it's deep. Could have gone longer. We could have gone longer, but we decided, you know. You know, she has a life. I don't, but she does. Um, but uh, thanks to Sean Asher, by the way, Sports Information UCF for helping us set that up. A couple quick notes uh, before we move on. Obviously, Aaliyah White, uh, Murph, is going to be a focal point come 2021 in a lot of ways because when the season ended, one of the questions was if she would come back or not. She was so close to many UCF records, in particular the wins record. She sat at 77 wins when the season came to an end on March 11th when UCF beat Cal State Fullerton. And really, she was on pace to break Shelby Turnier's record at 80 wins, probably within the next couple of weeks after that. Now she gets mm. a year back, and she'll have a chance to break that record, we hope. And then, But bringing this nucleus back – and. Uh, they're going to be a team that's going to be in the top 25 in the preseason, probably the favorites for the American. And I kind of want to bring baseball along this conversation because obviously baseball and softball uh, were having tremendous seasons uh, before the season came down. And I know we've addressed baseball to some extent uh, in previous episodes with the obviously Jeffrey Hakinson being drafted in the fifth round, Trevor Holloway signing as a free agent with the Yankees, Joe Sheridan transferring to Notre Dame. But I, I kind of want to mm-hmm. give a quick skeleton look here on the Knights um, baseball and softball looking to 2021. Softball returns just about every so- uh, starter, plus they return a, they bring in a strong class. So I want to kind of go but p- quick glance, positions there, kind of your quick thoughts on the baseball side. I'll give my thoughts on softball and then any questions that you might linger for 21. I- I'll start with the pitching staff. For UCF, which I think will be the deepest. I wrote about this on Black and Go Bannerhead podcast with Aaliyah back now. You have G. Mancha, Brianna Vasquez. Those were the top three. You had Madison Davis, who's having a very good summer. She's play, pitching in the Florida Collegiate Summer League for softball and makes the All-Star game. And as a matter of fact, she's having a great year uh, as well. And then they had Cassidy Congemi, who transferred from Boise State, among others. This is going to be a deep staff that I thought was starting to pitch better as the year goes on. I think they're gonna, that's going to be a, the deepest staff program history. I think they're in really good shape pitching-wise. How does baseball look? We mentioned some of the subtractions, which would lead to some questions, but how's pitching you think look for 21 right now? If, if you had to do a skeleton way too early projections, and obviously we're not going to include maybe the newcomers that come in because you just don't know uh, uh, what their roles could be and, and know as much about them, but just kind of from what you know, well, how's the pitching look at UCF for baseball in 21? Yeah, you know, you mentioned the, the names that UCF lost, and they're all pitchers, and they're all really key cogs of, what, of, of last year's team. Um, so they're going to, I think what's, what's, what's said about most is that there's going to be an obvious hole in the starting rotation when you lose Trevor Holloway and Joe Sheridan. Now UCF has gone out, they've signed AJ Jones 
from Jack, they've, you know, they've gotten AJ Jones, the transfer from Jacksonville. He is looked at to sort of fill one of those weekend rotation roles, although he can sort of be a swing man, uh, a long reliever or a starter. But I think preferably they'd like to have him in the rotation, probably behind, at least, definitely behind Colton Gordon, who looked really good as a Friday night starter, and then possibly between or maybe behind Hunter Pattison, the high upside freshman who you know had some up and ups and downs last year in his in his first year, but really looks like he has the stuff and the mindset to be a really solid weekend rotation guy. On the back end, you lose Jeffrey Hakinson after one of the best, you know, small, you know, uh, you know, very, you know, shortened seasons and a small sample size still, but one of the best seasons from a UCF pitcher uh, as the closer, just dominant, dominant. We've talked about it a lot. You would imagine that Jackson Clare would move into that role. I mean, as much as we talk about Jeffrey, Jackson Clare was almost as equally good last year for UCF. Uh, really is the setup man. He kind of is the, the easy guy to tab as the next closer. The issue there is, okay, so who sort of fills those seventh and eighth inning roles? And you've got you've got options, obviously, with, with Zach Hunsicker, uh, David Litchfield, who at times was was nails uh, out of the bullpen, Billy McKay, the submariner, Nick Gatilla, who even though he only pitched um, six innings as a freshman, uh, I, I didn't give up a hit in those six and a third innings. Uh, Ryan Saltonstall can get you uh, outs um, as well. I, I do think there's still – we don't know who's going to set up for the – who's, who's going to slot in to those middle relief roles. Um, so that and who is going to be the number two or number three starter are the two big questions for the pitching staff. Yeah, I think that, that'll be it. And again, it could be probably going to be one of the newcomers, I would assume, uh, the part of the yeah. recruiting class that will come in. Let's look at the infield a little bit. Uh, softball right now, like I mentioned, Jasmine Esparza, by her coming back with a great defense, she was having a career year. She was having her best offensive year, hitting over 300 when the season came to an end. I mean, she'll start at first base, but you also they have options at first base. They have a ton of depth. Uh, Shannon Doherty, an impressive freshman who led the team, was among the nation's leaders in hitting, uh, could play first base. Uh, even a Jules Wilson can even play some first base. So they got a lot of, of flexibility there. Second base, Justine Molina. You heard Coach Ball Malone talk about the impact coming in from Boise State. Was such a clutch hitter for them and played great range at second base. She'll be probably the starter going in at second base. Georgia Blair who was having a monster offensive year, six home runs at that point, was on her way to having double figures home runs, I think would have been the American Conference Player of the Year and the year continued. Uh, I think maybe the best power hitter we've had since Stephanie Best, who's in the Hall of Fame. She has power to all fields. She's probably going to go in starting at short. You got Cody, Jada Cody at third, who's really a nice, strong freshman at third base. And then really the big revelation was Carissa Ornelas behind the plate. Remember, Murph, about a year ago when we did the – even before the year, actually, excuse me, in February, the biggest question was who was going to replace Cassidy Brewer behind the plate at catcher. That was the big question. And Ornelas really stepped up, had a monster year offensively, did a great job behind the plate defensively. At 387, I think she hit. So I think infield, that's kind of the starters going in. But again, and Coach Baird talks about this, and anybody who's seen UCF play, she will mix up the lineup. She has a lot of depth. She'll play. She'll bring in players to be defensive replacements and offenses. We'll get into in a little bit. But that's kind of how softball looks in the infield. How do you feel the baseball infield looks like? Looks pretty decent if guys can sort of replicate what they did, you know, in 2020. Uh, Nick Romano had a really high average, really a, a singles-only hitter, um, but still uh, just a, a guy makes a guy who makes a lot of contact uh, over there on the infield. Matt Archer got moved from second base to third base, um, played pretty well at third, but also for a freshman, 
Um, you know, hit, I think, better than they expected. Um, obviously, it's short. You had the combination of Noah Orlando and Andrew Brait. Um, so, and then Ben McCabe uh, behind the dish. You also still have Jordan Rathbone returning uh, as a senior, the only, the only senior hitter on the squad. Uh, so those guys can really, they, they sort of, they have a lot of pieces back on that infield that looks like they can, basically, if they can repeat what they did in 2020, then they'll be fine. I, I wonder if guys like, if, if guys like Archer and Romano can keep the high average that they showed last year. That's my only, my only concern is if, 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 is if they can do that. I mean, Nick Romano walked only four times last year in 54 at-bats. For a guy who hit that high of an average, I'd like to see a little bit more. I just don't know if he can maintain that. Um, and we'll talk more, actually, about this offense later on in the show. Yeah, no question about that. Then the outfield, I mentioned Kira Klarkowski returning. In the mix, as I wrote, again, you can check out that article on blackandgobanneret.com right now. In the mix to be perhaps the best center fielder in the history of the program. They've had a very good defensive the old starting with Janae Schoenhoster was the original center fielder. Vanessa Perez was the all-time leader with 15 assists out of the center field position. Uh, Maddie Schroeder on the 2015 championship team. I think Kira with her arm and her range at center field is in that mix. Uh, and she's done, that's really what she's known for and in the intangibles that she brings at center field. Denali Schapacher, who could play left, center, and right. Really uh, somebody that could be a top-of-the-order player, can steal bases. Won the Michigan game with her legs, stealing third base and scoring on a wild pitch up in California when they knocked off Michigan up in that West Coast, start off that West Coast trip. Uh, and then you got other players like Haley Bejarano, who's getting healthy, her, you know, and her other relative, you know, the Bejarano sister uh, girls, as we meant, referenced them. And they got a lot of depth. Jules Wilson, a freshman who got to play some outfield at left field. Uh, so they've got options in the outfield. I think the, the corner outfield position is where you're going to see a lot of different movements. Casey Favas had a nice summer in that Florida Collegiate Summer League. Uh, the corner outfielders, I think Schapacher and Klarkowski, I feel pretty good about that one other spot could be a rotating of outfielders because they got so many options. You can go offense, you can go defense. Coach has that luxury uh, in the outfield. So they got some depth in that outfield position. Uh, and then as a result, they have some options they could do in the DP spot as well because of that. Uh, so they have so many interesting options. What options does Lovelady is looking at in the outfield? Probably the strength of the team is in the outfield. I talked about the stability in the infield. Guys returning, you have really all three main outfielders returning in 2021, and they look like the guys who can be the main offensive catalysts uh, in, in at the top of and middle of the lineup. Dal Wingo out in right field, uh, you know, I guess slightly underachieved, but started getting hot toward the you know right before the shutdown. I know he struggled early on, but still, uh, he is going to be looked at as a huge bat in the middle of the lineup. Uh, the guy who I thought was the best offensive player. On the team last year, Jeffrey Pena, not only a breakout star, but really a, a fantastic table setter as a leadoff guy, uh, 14 for, 13 for 14 stolen bases, uh, also had a uh, four, was it 415 on base percentage? I mean, that's what you want out of your leadoff guy and showed some power as well. Like can't, you know, can, can certainly drive the ball. Uh, he, he looks to be like coming into his own really quickly. And then the guy who I think is going to be the face of the franchise, as it were, for, uh, you know, probably more like 2022, 2023, is Pablo Ruiz uh, out in left field. He has natural talent. We had, you know, he had the two home run. He had a game with two home runs uh, before the shutdown. Uh, he's got, but so much confidence too. Natural swagger, really loves playing the game. Uh, and just as a hitter, 
uh, really, really well tooled. He's got all of those, like he's got all the tricks you want for a really good hitter, both as an as an average hitter and a guy who can drive the ball with power. Uh, you know, off, you know, defensively could certainly use some work in left field, um, but it's not going to matter when he's putting up big numbers at the plate. And I expect him to do so. Uh, what the great thing is, he's only going to be a true sophomore. Uh, I really feel like in very short order, he will be this team's best player. Yeah, uh, I've heard great things about him. Even this summer, he's been, uh, you know, over at baseball and playing the summer league there. There, so look, I think both of these teams, I think all things considered, are in really good shape for 2021. Both are going to have expanded rosters, uh, but yet, I, I want your thoughts on Lovelady because I, I talked about that with Coach Bear. She's she really, I think, could easily will fit in with that deep schedule. I think she's the perfect coach to have when you have so many players because she uses her bench. In the interview, she referenced it as the All-American bench. She really believes in that. She will use players during the game for various uh, different reasons, defensive purposes, offensive purposes, uh, certain matchups, analytics may play a role, uh, a lot of different of those things. Plus, softball obviously has the reentry rule, so it gives you a lot more options where you could take a player out and bring him back in. So I think she's going to actually enjoy that. Plus, she likes the fact there's going to be internal competition and keep them sharp. That was a big factor in their success in 2020 is that there was a lot of competition internally on that roster. How do you feel Greg will handle an expanded roster and, and kind of fit, fit putting the pieces there and fitting the puzzle there? I personally, just in my, my quick glance and seeing them, I think he kind of also will is a perfect fit to have uh, as to have as a coach because he likes to have different matchups and different lineups and believes in in those type of things as well. What what's your thoughts on that? Well, as it is right now, UCF is at 34 players if you include the incoming freshman class, and I, I know it's uh, it's kind of early to talk about those guys still, but but the roster is kind of as is, uh, kind of it's almost basically a finished product, and it's it's. It's being that much with only, I believe, well, well, they have Jordan Rathbone, and I believe A.J. Jones is a senior from Jacksonville. So they only have, I think, two seniors. And so the the expanded rosters is not really going to affect UCF that much. I mean, they lost a lot of their seniors after this past season. Jalen Whitehead, uh, Zach Helzel, Chad Lindsman all decided not to return. They've gotten other jobs. Um, so in terms of everybody getting an extra year, uh, certainly you could see some of the freshmen uh, certainly being impacted because there's just, there's just a lot of, a lot of lower, a lot of underclassmen guys coming back. But I think as is the, the roster's pretty He's not like he's got 42 guys. That he's got to handle like a lot of these, like uh, these lower D one schools do, they don't have a ton of seniors coming back. And because of that, and with all the, uh, with the guys they lost in the draft and Joe Sheridan transferring, they, they have a pretty workable roster as is. It's not going to be a huge change from what they've got. Well, that's good news. Uh, do you think I mentioned? I think softball is going to should be a top twenty-five team in the preseason poll. It will be the favorites in the American. Where do you put baseball on that front? Can they be a preseason top twenty-five team? Could they be? I don't know if we, they will be the favorites in the American. We never got to found that. Unfortunately, we never got to find out that answer, Murph. About <laughs> could UCF match up with East Carolina because they never they didn't you know we just didn't didn't get there. Where do you where would you put UCF as far as do you think they're a top twenty-five preseason team based on what they have returning? And where do they maybe mix up match up in the American, which might be a little trickier because you never got you know close enough to play conference games. Right. I think it's always easy to assume that East Carolina is always going to be there as like that main measuring stick for UCF. I, I, it's going to be difficult because the players they lost were so instrumental to their success. I mean, 
there's there's games that could change if Jeffrey Higginson is literally not, you know, if he's just if he's absolutely unhittable, which he absolutely was. Um, and, and, and a losing Joe Sheridan hurts your stability in the rotation. And so now you're depending upon Hunter Patterson as a sophomore to really, really step up. You're depending upon someone like A.J. Jones uh, to come in right away and, and be uh, probably a starter for you off the bat. There are, there are questions. I think the, the questions of the pitching staff really concern me, uh, especially in the bullpen. Not that, they're, not that they're bereft. We've gone through the options. I just don't know who steps forward. And this team, whenever Lovelady's been at the helm, has been at its best when the bullpen is strong and deep. And I believe it's deep. I just don't know the talent level it's got right now. And I, and I know it's, you know, it's only, you know, Hakenson, uh, who was a major loss from last year. It's only one guy, but he was a, a gigantic part of that. He made everyone's job easier. Um, and so without him and everyone sort of changing roles because he's gone, how does that change the bullpen? I, I, I do have concerns with that. Could they be a top 25 team? Sure, they could have. They probably will be because of where they ended last season. Um, but and, and you've seen some of those like preseason uh, preseason mocks, uh, uh, preseason top 25, or not preseason, but like early top 25 from like other uh, websites that put UCF top in the 25 or top 20. That's fine. I could see them there. I, I just don't know. If, the, the shame of this season is I just don't know if they're ever going to be that good again. I certainly hope so, but everything just seemed so perfect last year, and, and now it's going to be really hard to, to – to replicate that. Yeah, I mean, listen, everybody lost, right? Everybody lost season. All the sports lost. All the athletes lost. And obviously there is a bigger th- – it, 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 sports is kind of benign in all this compared to what's really going on elsewhere. So I want to preference that. Uh, that said, I feel like two of the bigger you know, purse people I felt the most for – I mentioned Aaliyah White and the fact that this was a year she was shaping up to be uh, a legacy year. You know, leading the turn team back to the turn at the NCAA tournament, maybe winning the conference, maybe a pitcher of the year, breaking Shelby Turnier's record, uh, and maybe putting herself in that conversation with Allison Kime and Shelby Turnier and Mackenzie Otis among the greatest of all time in the black and gold. I thought she took a big, uh, tough defeat in that regard. I felt for her, and I thought on the baseball's front, Murph, I felt for Greg. In a lot of ways, it sounds weird to say that because this was finally his guys. And we talked about that with us before the year. These are his guys, and he's developing these guys. And he was going to – and they were having a great year. And, you know, let's say they don't win the league but make the NCAA tournament. That would have been two NCAA tournaments for Lovelady in his first four years with two other years where they were knocking on the door, being among the first four out, averaging over 36 wins a year. It was a pretty good start, and he won't get that in his resume. I felt bad for him and his coaching staff in that front. Those, to me, was my takeaway as far as the big, from an individual standpoint, the, the ones I felt for the most. I, did, did you feel that way as far as who you felt for the most as far as individually? Yeah, I don't. I always feel more for the players because yep. their time at this level is so much more finite than any manager's can be. I mean, if, if a manager is successful, you can basically turn yourself into Augie Garrido and stay around forever. Uh, but, but, you know, a raw data or whatever, but for a player, you've only got four or five years and this year, um, you know, especially for the guys who've only been here, maybe one or two years, we're not part of the 2017 club, uh, that, that made it to the, to the regionals that did that, that one conference USA, that's who I feel worse for, because you just don't know if you could ever get back to that, that level again. And as talented as you might be, it's very difficult. And, you know, UCF is now a team going into next year that people are going to be marking 
you know, even more so in non-conference matchups and conference matchups because they were so good last year. People are going to look at them as like, that's the team we need to beat to measure ourselves. And with that sort of extra notice, you know, it, it, it makes things it makes things tougher. It absolutely will make things tougher because everybody, everybody's going to get everybody's going to give you their best shot. Whereas last year, UCF might have caught some guys off guard uh, early on, and we're exceeding expectations. Well, now after that, after that preview, everyone everyone's got them in their book, and, and so it's gonna be it's gonna be really difficult. And sometimes you have that magical season where everything sort of matches up, and you have the right pieces in place and the right locker room atmosphere and. Everything is going well, and and then it gets wiped out like it did, and you just don't know if you can if you can uh, you know get it back, and that's going to be one of the questions. I'm sure the guys will say all the right things right. about how they're motivated to to make up for this season, and and they haven't forgotten. But so much of it is just it's sort of like fate. It just you know things fall into place where you you know when you when you're that good, sometimes sometimes things have to go your way. They have to break right. Um, and and they and really did for UCF all last year and, and if, can you do that again? Right, uh, it's gonna be difficult. It's gonna be difficult. Trevor Holloway, if I if I you've told me I have to pick a player, I would say him because he he was having a year where it looked like Murph he could be a contender for pitcher of the year in the American like where he was that good. I thought the way he was throwing yeah, the ball, I, I, he was amazing. He was amazing. He had finally was able to cut down on his walks. He, he was able to control it. His slider was is is so difficult becomes it comes at different angles. Uh, it moves. It moves in different directions. Uh, he had he, he put everything together. I mean, he really had put in put everything together. Um, certainly, he could have come back. Uh, and but I think everybody understood that he he just wasn't in the the position in his life where his life is at right now. Just getting married last year. Uh, that that he probably you know needed to go forward. Um, but uh, so yeah, I feel I feel bad that he's not going to have that chance again because you're right. There's a chance he could have been American Conference Pitcher of the Year and then. I just would have loved to have seen what Jeffrey Higginson's numbers would have been if he had been able to put up like 30 or 40 innings. And uh, that is something that I know it's just, it's just not going to happen again. Like if for anybody, like it's just so rare what he yeah. did again, he allowed two balls out of the infield in, in all last year. Like that's, it's stupid. And I, I just don't think anybody's going to replicate Anybody's going to be able to replace that. You're just not, you, you can't expect to replace that. So it's gonna be difficult. I think a lasting memory of the 2020 for baseball softball, think back to that weekend, February 21st, 23rd, when softball demolished Tennessee, beat them twice in Tampa, run-ruled them. No one's ever done that to Tennessee. Tennessee was ranked 12th at the time. And then baseball sweeping Auburn. Uh, Tanner Burns, who was a high draft pick, as it turns out, a Tiger team that was talented, and UCF went in there and swept them. I think that's the lasting memory I'll have for those two programs and those two 2020 teams. Uh, that they, leave, they left that mark that hadn't been done before. Softball went on and beat Michigan, had a great West Coast trip, I think 5-2-1 and one when that got unfolded. But baseball, sweeping Auburn, I think those are the memories we'll take back for those teams uh, in 2020. And hopefully uh, they can continue, you know, boggle up that, you know, deal and move it forward to 2021 and in the future for those two programs. Uh, make sure you check out Black and Gold Banneret. Obviously, we talked to Coach Malone. We thank her for being on this episode. But Murph, you also, of course, Right around MLB draft time, you spoke to Greg Lovelady at length about you know this the program in, in the state as well, so people could check that out. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, no, that, go ahead. It's a really good stuff that you got with Greg exclusively here, and that's why you people come here to the Banneret to get things like that. Uh, we'll wrap it up with Ask Banneret coming up. How's Mackenzie Milton doing? Plus, a scandal involving a national championship program. 
We'll break that down. What's going on when we conclude and wrap up this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. And welcome back to the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast. We'll now uh, go into a little Ask Banneret. We'll do this freak from time to time where uh, we'll let you ask some of the questions you're kind of curious about. You could drop them on our Facebook page uh, or on our Twitter page uh, and drop the questions there. And Murph, I only think it's fitting that we begin our Ask Banneret questions with Unger to Unger asking you a baseball question. I feel like that's the closest. That feels a little normal to me. I, I personally enjoy that. He asked, are we looking for any other grad transfers involving talking baseball? And are we planning on changing our schedule to more state schools due to COVID and less travel? Mm-hmm. So I will take the second question first because that's, that's the easier answer. And if Sam, you know, probably listened to the first segment here. We talked about the uncertainty with football. That's a fall sport that's supposed to start in September or August, and we don't know what's going to happen. So it is much too early, and all the conferences agree, even the Ivy and the Patriot League, it's much too early to sort of make decisions about changes to the spring schedule right now as far as spring sports go. So, no, I, I don't know if there is any sort of discussions going on right now about – moving their spring schedule around to fight to face more in in-state opponents. I have no idea about that. This we, that is so far beyond the horizon that I, I just it's not even a thing that, that we've really, that they've really considered. Uh, certainly that I know of. However, uh, as far as looking to add to the roster. Now I said that the roster uh, coming into this year if you add in the the freshmen that are supposed to arrive and you know add in AJ Jones and what they've got coming back they're at 34 players. Uh, certainly, you know, you could, you could, uh, with the, with the rules, uh, you can add up to 35 or it can go obviously larger. If you, you know, want to put, you have a senior there. So you can go to, I think the 37, cause they have, they have two seniors who wouldn't count toward the roster count. But I do know that UCF is looking for at least one thing. And that is most likely an experienced bat, probably upperclassmen, maybe grad transfer, uh, to come in and, into their lineup. It makes some sense there. You look at their lineup. Uh, we talked about Pablo Ruiz and, and Jeffrey Pena, um, Matt Archer, and, and 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 guys of that ilk. So, you know, Matt Archer's a freshman. Jeffrey Pena, great last year, but it was only one year, a year after he really was just a pinch runner. Um, Pablo Ruiz, also still a freshman. So you would like more experience in that lineup. And I think that's what that's something that they're still looking for. They would like to add... Uh, a upperclassman bat. Uh, I have been told that there's not a whole lot out there as far as great options. There are there are a ton of options like out there. Uh, if you look at the transfer portal, there's more than I think. I think we're up to 1,200 players that are in the transfer portal uh, in baseball. Um, but as far, there's nothing that really sticks out right now. But that is something they're shopping for. They would like someone to, to go alongside with Dalton Wingo and Jordan Rathbone in, in that offense. Laz Lopez at Laz Lopez 5. Great last name. Love the last name. No relation. Um, Laz Lopez 5 asks, with the recent basketball news and how it looks on paper at the moment, what do you have to say to the fired Dawkins crowd? Obviously referring to the C.J. Walker commitment, which, by the way, was made official uh, late last week. I believe it was Thursday or Friday that it was made official. UCF announced it. We spent a ton of time on it last week. Michael Donald was yeah. our guest last week, so if you want, I encourage you to check that out as we broke down the roster in depth. So we won't do that, but we will address uh, this question about the fired Dawkins crowd. 
which is always uh, <laughs> I don't know it, it, that that's an interesting point. I don't think that's the majority, but you're always going to have somebody. You're always going to have a few uh, a few people that won't be happy no matter no. what. They, they won't have there'll always be a few, right, Murph? That they're not going to be happy. So. What 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 would you say to the fire Dawkins crowd? There's always going to be that minority percentage of people that aren't going to be happy with anything. Well, that's because let's be honest, everyone is so spoiled by football uh, that they believe at some point that if it's not perfection or near perfection, then it's not good enough. And again, we have to keep reminding people that uh, UCF basketball is not Duke, it's not North Carolina or Kansas or Syracuse. Or, or even like uh, you know, obviously UCLA. Like it's still an, it's still a very uh, young upstart program where you need to really treasure the great seasons and sort of live with the rebuilding seasons. And I think we saw that obviously last year when you know obviously when it was a, basically a full team restructuring after so many guys that graduated and moved on. Uh, however, for those who want to denigrate Johnny Dawkins, I, I, and we and we've and we've we said this many times before. It, I guess it doesn't. It doesn't hurt to state it again. In the four years he's been here, right, you had the 2016 team that when replacing the, 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 the dark ages of, Don, of Donnie Jones, he goes comes in the first year in the league and takes that team to the NIT Final Four. I understand that's not the NCAA tournament. That is still a huge accomplishment to get to the NIT Final Four in his first year taking over a new program. Second year – I guarantee you that team would have made the NCAA tournament with all of the pieces they had. B.J. Taylor, Taco Fall, Aubrey Dawkins. You still had A.J. Davis at that point. And yet all of those guys, except for really A.J. Davis, who is really holding the thing together for a long time, all those guys get hurt. And so now it it, it feels like a what-if season. And yet still, without Taco for basically the second half of the year, Without BJ for the first half of the year and without Aubrey for the entire season, that team still finishes above 500 and was really competitive in games even they lost. And I think, again, that goes to coaching of a guy, the guy just adjusting on the fly. Then the third season, everything comes together, expectations are met. They play in one of the, they, play, they win their account, they win uh, the NCAA tournament game for the first time. They pretty much, as we've said many, 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 many times, should have probably beaten Duke. Uh, it's the best game I, I, I've seen at UCF, uh, and 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 yet still, he's, that Giant Dawkins does not get enough credit for that season because they only won one game. However, that team uh, was was unbelievable and reaches reached its full potential. And then last year, after they put in nine new guys, he still fi- finishes another above 100 above 500 season, working in a ton of freshmen, moving parts. Uh, and, and still like, again, not a season that you would say like they really failed because again, this, the, the, he, Johnny Dawkins has kept putting, uh, putting on, you know, if not like heavily entertaining basketball, productive basketball, successful basketball. I know he hasn't won conference titles and they're not getting into the tournament every year, but if that's your expectations, although that's the team expectations, that can't be UCF's expectations. Level to where they can expect to go to the count to, to the NCAA tournament every year. Uh, they, they need long sustained periods of births before we can come to expect that. Now we need to just treasure the good years we have. We look like we should have one coming up, as we talked about with Mike O'Donnell. Any, anybody who wants to you know hear more about 
us defend Johnny Dawkins. Go back in the podcast archives and listen to our interview with Mike O'Donnell because Mike's in the same on the same page as us. Johnny Dawkins is underrespected as a coach on this campus. Uh, is and is just really from a from a from a coach's standpoint of trying to put your guys in the best position to win. I don't know if there's a coach who's better than him on this entire campus, and that's with a lot of programs who are in the top 25 in the country in their respective sports. But when you look at all the of of the uh, of the hardships and and trials and tribulations he's had to overcome with injuries and, and new roster changes, uh, he has done a really magnificent job every year he's been here to get this team to where it's gotten. And I, I don't understand people who expect him to win 25 games a year. Uh, it's just, it's just you're being irrational. And I feel like a lot of it is served up from the football program because no one looks at athletics past football for so many of the, so many fans. They just don't really care too much about UCF athletics past football. And that is not a hot take. That is, that's just the dead honest truth. Our click rates will tell you that, <laughs> that most, that both fans, care most about football and don't really care deeply enough about the other sports to really have a good grasp of what a successful season makes. Speaking of football and football coaches that uh, people follow that's somewhere else coaching, Patrick Hill write uh, to our, in our Facebook page. And again, you could write, write to us on our Facebook page, uh, Black and Gold Banner at UCF Sports Podcast News and Analysis on the Facebook page. Like us there. And of course, on our Twitter, we're as well, UCF underscore Bannerette. Uh, Patrick Hill wrote on our Facebook page, uh, let's see here, Patrick Hill, our softball team doesn't get the attention it deserves, Murph. Um, that's what he said. Gal- that's not your fault. That's not your fault. <laughs> I hope not. I try. Uh, he says, Gillespie is having regrets leaving just like Scott Frost. Oh. Um, I want to address like this from a couple fronts. Um I'll start with the softball one to make it real quick on that, and then I want to move to the Frost thing because I think it kind of piggy banks a little bit. Um, uh, uh, yes, I, I'm for like, softball not getting enough respect. Uh, listen, my, my suggestion, Patrick, follow In the Circle SB. It's a great uh, softball podcast. It's on twice a week. The, the host of it is a very similar voice to this one you're hearing right now, so feel free to subscribe there. you got a lot of softball coverage uh, on there and, 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 and with UCF Talk as well. But as far as Renee regrets, uh, she's at Iowa. She just was in a process of her second year. They were having a good year as Iowa as well uh, with dominant pitching with Allison Ducey and among things. She's close to the family. She's living with her parents. Her parents are up there in Iowa. I don't think she's having regrets. I think, Murph, what has transpired with Coach Gillespie moving on to Iowa, which is her home state, her idol is Gail Blevins, and with Coach Bayer, Coach Ball Malone coming into UCF and taking over in that transition, you could not have asked for a better transition where I think everybody has won. Everybody's won. I think Renee, uh, and I got to see her uh, full disclosure, ironically, it was the last one of the last weekends of the uh, – it was the last weekend of the regular season in softball. They were in Madeira Beach playing in a tournament, so I got to go up there and see her. She's got that energy. She's got that energy – uh, I think she's excited. She wants to turn around Iowa. She wants to get Iowa back to the NCAA tournament. They haven't been there since uh, 2009. She's got a lot of exciting pitching. She had a good one-two punch going at Iowa at this present year. They were on pace to possibly make the tournament this year. Uh, and then they've got some young hitters that they're recruiting from in the state of Iowa as well as nationally. And I, you know, I think they're building it the right way and they're heading in the right direction. So I think she's excited about that. And at the same time, 
I think what Coach Ball Malone has brought, especially offensively with their philosophy, has brought some new excitement to this roster, which she admits was a very good roster she inherited, but she's added to it with the transfers like Justine Molina and as well as, uh, obviously, uh, G. Manchester. It's added some pieces there, and I think it's brought it's helped bring more out of these players, and she even mentioned it. Yes, her and Coach Gillespie are very different. I agree with that. But it doesn't mean that one is wrong or one is right approach, and I think in this scenario, it's worked out for everybody. Now, I, I totally agree with that. I know I know you mean every second of that. I actually wanted to judge mm-hmm. the, the assumption in that question because it is kind of UCF-related. Does Scott Frost really regret going yep. to Nebraska? He does. That's what you say. Uh, does he regret going to Nebraska? I am a hard no on that. I for the gr- same re- for the same reasons you brought up with Renee. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm, I'll, I'll hang up and listen. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think he regrets it. I, it, you know, is he frustrated with how the first two seasons has gone at Nebraska? Sure, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but I think, you know, one of the things I hate about where we're at, everybody's so quick to judge. He's only two years there, and people are like, "Whoa, what's wrong? What's going on?" Like, we don't have any patience anymore. And I, I, you know, and to some extent. His 2017 year is kind of a curse to him, right? Because everybody just saw how he turned it around at UCF from the outside and said, hey, six and seven, wow, he could do that in Nebraska. No, there's two different, completely different scenarios. I think anybody that would tell you he inherited a heck of a roster at UCF that, quite frankly, you know, things just, just went south in 2015, and he can inherit it. Credit to him and his coaching staff, and I know some of our fans, and this is what bothers me, I hate the fact that there are fans, some in our fan base that's rooting against him because he went back home, which I think is ridiculous. Um, and that's one of the things I'm proud of. And I want to point out real quick about the softball. UCF fans have – there's no animosity towards Renee at all. They actually hope she does well at Iowa. Now, if the day comes, if they play each other, uh, you know, forget that. But but they're, 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 there's no negative ill will, and I'm disappointed, Murph, that there is still from some, not all, and I think that's – I want to mention it. I don't think it's the majority. I think the minority – you know, the minority – sometimes the minority is very loud but to some extent. But I, there are some that just hold this angst against him because he left to go to Nebraska and, oh, he wore this shirt on, like, champion. Like, who cares? The guy led you to an undefeated season, the best season in the history of the program. So that part bothers me. But the other part that bothers me is we're, we're quick to judge him because he's two years in and he hasn't taken him to a bowl game yet. You know, can we give him at least four years to figure things out considering Lincoln, Nebraska is a little trickier, a harder job than it is at UCF where he inherited a lot of talent. They did a great job of getting the most out of him, in particular the Griffin brothers. Uh, and he's trying to figure that out in Nebraska. Uh, but I agree with you. I don't think he regrets leaving, but he does miss the roster he left behind, though. And I think that's why you saw him. Why you saw him be so emotional uh, near the tail end of that season, especially after the conference championship game, when he knew he had to go. Again, I would I would say that he would be he would regret he would have regretted his move if it was something that was really weighing on his mind about whether or not he should actually do it. And I think in the end, he was at total peace that he had to do this. It was too perfect perfect for him. This is the dream job. For Scott Frost, the reason why you saw him crying 
is because it hurt him so much to leave behind what he created, the relationships he started and the program he built here. That doesn't mean that he regretted going to Nebraska. Those tears were out of the fact that he knew he had to leave. He did have to. I mean, it was it was the only real it was the only real choice for him. And people were like, no, he could have stayed like, no, for him. That that was the choice. The Nebraska job had opened up. If the Nebraska job had opened up before the UCF job had opened up, Nebraska would have hired him from Oregon in the first place. So again, it was just a matter of time. Okay, it was it was all about Scott Frost going to Nebraska. Uh, and I, I agree that he certainly would not be happy about the results, but that doesn't mean he is unhappy about what put him there. He had to go. Yeah, and and I think a lot of people would have done the same. And I just wish I hope people I wish people would just. You know what? Don't worry what he's doing. Don't worry about what he's doing in Nebraska, and just there's there should be no ill will. He left the program in really good shape. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? I just I don't get it, but I'll never get it. One guy he does miss though, Murph, probably the most is yeah. one that many miss, and that's Mackenzie Milton. And that brings us up to our next question on Ask Ban- uh, Banneret from Eric Edwards at UCF uh, One Big Ohana. What is the status of KZ? He was supposed to go to Minnesota last month uh, with a doctor. What did the doctor say? Is no news bad news, Murph? I don't think it's bad news, but it's definitely no news. <laughs> so, look, um, obviously there has not been a lot of clarity on this front. Yes, Mackenzie told us <clears throat> back in May that he had to go up to Minnesota, see his surgeon uh, at the end of June. That meeting with the surgeon might actually end up with him getting cleared uh, to return to full-time football activities. And then June came and went, and we didn't hear anything. And that doesn't mean that 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 no one was looking, because that's all. I mean, like privately, that's all anybody who's been who's covering these teams really cared about. At the end of June, we we circled that date. Uh, the, the 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 week of the end of June, we circled it. We we were on alert, and you know that McKenzie and also his mother Teresa. They've been very public with his rehab and his progress on social media. So I wouldn't you know, think that they would be trying to hide something. Is it bad news? I have, again, this is a bad answer, but I really don't know because I have not seen anything. I, now, McKenzie is still on social media. He's on Instagram. He's, I mean, he, you know, he's posting videos and such, but nothing really of him working out. Has he had a setback? That, that I have no idea. No one really knows. And so I know that's a very unsatisfying answer. But I, I would not imagine that there's bad news. I would just think that if I had to assume, with everything going on, I imagine that, that things have been pushed back. And so I imagine for him, things have just been pushed back. And so what was going to happen in late June is now in into July. I thought maybe they would happen by now and, and now in mid-July. But uh, we're just waiting longer. I think when there is real news on McKenzie Milton, someone, either him or his mother or someone, will let, like we, they will let us know. I do not think they will hide it. I really don't. So, you know, again, it's it's too bad that we don't we don't have clarification on this. And we, we, we would like to see McKenzie go to Minnesota in June. Um, and we're still waiting on it every day. We're checking on it. Uh, and there's just nothing there. And we'll continue to do it. And we'll see what pops up. Hopefully sooner than rather than later. Hopefully sooner than later. Um, but we just don't know. And that's as of Wednesday night that we don't know. You never know. I mean, I mean, we're we're you know we're we're doing as much as we can with as little as we with as little as we have, That's um, right. and there's not a whole lot going on out there. But I, you know, I just I, I have a feeling that when something when something of some order of magnitude happens, that either McKenzie or his mom will say something because that's just 
That's the way it's always been. They've been very out front with 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 his recovery and his struggles and his ups and downs. And so I think when something happens that is notice, is newsworthy, uh, if, if none of us break it first, they will. Uh, and, and so I, I take the I take the no news part of this as just that. And, um, and maybe that, that maybe that's actually good news because it doesn't mean he's had a setback. So we'll be monitoring that. Uh, so uh, good stuff. I enjoyed these questions and statements. Uh, feel free to do them anytime you want. We'll try to do this uh, every so often on the show. Again, on Twitter, on UCF underscore Banneret, and then as well as on our Facebook page. So I uh, really enjoyed that uh, deal. Let's A uh, couple items before we sign off. Uh, Cal Jennings, we talked about this last uh, week, about his status, that he didn't sign – he was a first-round draft pick by FC Dallas. Turned out he didn't sign by the deadline, uh, which is kind of confusing. It's kind of like the major league. Ba- it's kind of like the baseball rule where if a draft pick doesn't sign by a certain date, they become they kind of either go back to school or whatever. Well, with Cal, they didn't come to terms, so he was kind of a free agent to kind of look around. Well, uh, it was announced earlier this week he signed with the USL team in Memphis. In Memphis, mm. as we recorded this, Murph, being the soccer guru that he is, took a peek at the Memphis soccer match that was televised on ESPN2 as we recorded this. Uh, we didn't see him in, on the pitch, as you said, right, Murph? I have not seen him. Okay. Now, I'm so very locked into this podcast, <laughs> I might have missed him, but I, I have not seen uh, Cam yet. And we're at the 58th minute. Oh, my God, my heart is palpitating. There you go. So, uh, Cal Jennings now with Memphis. Any recommendations for him as far as the city of Memphis and where he should go? Dude, barbecue. Like, I don't care. Just go go eat some barbecue. It's fantastic. Also, the Civil Rights Museum uh, out in the, out in the uh, Lorraine Motel. It, it, uh, that, is, that is a transformative experience. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a really good city with a, a lot of good places, to, a lot of good places to, to go either eat or visit or learn. Exactly. Warren Crovell, his Philadelphia team, advancing to the knockout stage. They're 2-0. and They beat New York City FC 1-0, beat Miami. So they're in the knockout stage of the MLS tournament. They're 2-0. and Where So Warren Crovell, who's our recent guest here, good karma from the show. Sean Johnson, unfortunately not for him. New York City FC 0-2. They lost to Orlando City 3-1 to on Tuesday night. Orlando City 2-0. and They're going to the knockout stage of the MLS tournament in the bubble. At Disney. So the moral of the story is if you come on Banneret, means good things. And if you don't, probably not. I'm st- <laughs> that's my story, well, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Uh, unfortunately, that, 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 the, the, uh, the, the Banneret karma didn't extend to Chad Brown and A.J. Davis. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. They, uh, their no, team got the, they did not get a chance to play for a million for the uh, TBT tournament. They got knocked out before the tournament started as one of their players, unfortunately tested positive uh but we still enjoyed him on the show and we wish sean well beyond that we kid we care we kid because we care uh and we wish taco fall well he's in the bubble for the nba with the celtics you uh, there have been clips which you have enjoyed taco's back in orlando and if anybody is on twitter and will go find the celtics uh the celtics account put up this lovely video i think it was uh, yesterday on tuesday on the 14th of players trying to guess baby pictures and one of the baby pictures is of Taco, and and uh, it's just hilarity ensues. It was heartwarming, and it was funny, and it's pretty hilarious to see Taco dressed up, uh, you know, when he was a when he was a, really a small child, or well, small relatively. I never, I assume, never really a small child. <laughs> Probably not. I, 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 no, I would not assume that. But um, 
there. Now, uh, baseball news of recent guests. We have Ben Lively, who you and I got to talk to, Murph, on episode 226. He's in South Korea. We talked about it. He was injured at the time. He was in the middle of rehab and the timetable. And uh, we got now an official date for the return of Ben Lively here on the KBO. Oh, my God. Almost right to actually the date of his projected return. So eight. So so about eight weeks ago, Ben Lively pitched in a game, got the first batter out and then left um, because of what we found out was uh, a, a ruptured rib muscle, which he talked about when he, we when we had him on the show a few weeks back. He was expected to be out eight weeks. And sure enough, eight weeks to the day of that of that last appearance, Ben Lively will return to the Samsung Lions this Friday, uh, Friday morning. I forget who they're playing. As I look it up frantically, they're playing the Lotte Giants. Uh, so Ben will be pitching uh, starting at five, I believe five. No, it's, it's Saturday. It's Saturday at five in the morning, uh, East Coast time, the 18th. I'll be awake. I have not watched a second of the KBO since Ben Lively got hurt. But as I tweet out today, I'm like the Undertaker rising up out of the casket. <laughs> if Ben Lively's on the mound, I will be up. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I assume that also for anybody who wants to, you know, really tune in and like is interested in that game, I would not expect to see Ben Lively go long. He only went on one rehab start uh, and he pitched two innings. So this is probably going to be a very short stint as he sort of works his way back into shape. But we hope he stays healthy because uh, I know he's had some bad luck when we talked to him. And uh, so we hope it kind of helps turns it around. I mean, we encourage you to check out uh, that episode. That's episode 226. Mur- Murph mentioned A.J. Davis and Chad Brown. We still encourage you to check that out. That's on episode 227, uh, wherever you listen to our podcast. And then Warren Craval episode was 228, talking about his ret- his UCF soccer career in the MLS. And then Michael Donald last week was 229. So make a note of that. Uh, get more details on that. A couple articles to keep track of on the banneret. My top 100 list of the greatest male athletes, the top 80 female athlete list. Towards the end here, Murph, uh, part of this UCF 250 series where we're going to honor players, male players, female players, and head coaches and assistants. We're, uh, depending on when you listen to this episode, the top tens would have been un- unveiled uh, or will be unveiled. We'll just leave it as that. So we're, we're all have reached to the point of 11. We've gone from the men, have been, we have unveiled 11 to 100, and the women have been from 11 to 80. Uh, your thoughts, quick Murph, on that as far as anything that's jumped out to you, and who would be your personal uh, either, you know, I don't, I'm not going to give you, say, mention your top 10, but maybe your top couple of athletes, both on the male and the female athlete list, do you think uh, if it was your list, you would have for sure in the top 10? I, I, I honestly don't have enough of a database for female. I mean, Michelle Akers. Yeah, like, there you go. That, that's, I mean, that's not going to give it. She's got to be one, right? Find out. It's, I mean, put it to, for, hey, for, we want people to tune in. But that's for, a good, let me put it this way. You're, that's not a bad guess. That's a good start. That's yeah, that's a, yeah. For men, I mean, Dante put the university on the map athletically. Uh, at, least, at least for people of, of, of people just before my generation and sort of of my generation like that. Dante was the lighthouse tower uh, for everybody else that sort of was looking for UCF on a college football, college athletics landscape like Dante Culpepper was the flag post uh so I imagine he has to be up there um but I, you know that's that would be my my one I, I god I haven't thought about this enough to really I guess like in terms of influence like I know Eric's not gonna give me any clues so I'm just sort of <laughs> picking out of the dark here 
like, uh, I, I assume you haven't gotten to Shaquem Griffin yet. Have you gotten to Shaquem yet? Not yet. He has not been unveiled. Very good. Yeah. No. I, so I imagine he's got to be in the top five just in terms of not only impact, but influence. Uh, I think that matters. Plus, he's in the NFL. I think that matters, too. What I like about where we're at now, certainly for, like, the top 20 in the men, like, these, this is this is heady stuff. Now, we, we've gotten to the cream of the crop, really, where we're talking about guys who were either, you know, Lock in, you know, lock, uh, you know, uh, essential locks for Hall of Fame either previously or in the future for UCF or, you know, pro major leaguers and, and pro NFL football players and, uh, you know, MLB players. And, we, you know, we talked about Cal Jennings uh, and uh, and he was, uh, oh, my God, there's Cal Jennings. I swear to God. Whoa. That is Cal Jennings. Proud uh, as, bomb? As, as I live and breathe, as I live and breathe, Cal Jennings is on my TV. Because Memphis is playing with ten men. <laughs> oh no! And he's on the pitch. Uh, yeah, that's him. Wow, what number is he wearing? Uh, twenty something. Okay. I it's twenty twenty six. I can't see it. Uh, but that is Cal. He is in on the sixty. I didn't know when he came in. I didn't see when he hit the pitch. But it's the sixty sixth minute, and Memphis is down three nothing. But as I was saying about Cal, Cal Jennings, wow, he's number fourteen on your on your men's tie on your men's sixteen uh, tied for uh, sixteen. 16. No, tied for 16. Sorry. There's a lot of ties here, too, which I think is interesting. Yes. Howie, that? Yes. What, how, why ties? Why ties? Uh, so a few reasons. Number one, some of them I can't really f- figure out who's better, right? Like, So, for example, I tied Cal Jennings with Heike Rigvedon, who is like the one of the greatest soccer players in college soccer history. He's like in the top 10 in scoring in the history of the sport. But yet, Cal is the most decorated Division One men's soccer player in program history. They both played in different eras. It's hard to kind of compare one that played in the 90s versus one that just played. So I kind of caved uh, and ranked them tied. There are instances, too, where I'm like, hey, I forgot that guy. I better throw him in there uh, before it's too late and readjust some things. <laughs> so that also I happened. It. I won't mention names, but uh, – that happens. So that's it's. I, I use the 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 my my theory is kind of like the Masters. You know, there's you have to finish a certain uh, ranking in the Masters to qualify for the following year in the Masters. And they always say is like if you finish in the top thirty plus ties. Well, that's kind of how I equate my rankings to. Yeah, mm. I agree. And look, people can quibble with with the rankings. I know some of the people on the list have quibbled with the rankings, yes. but the fact is, I would not pay as much attention to who is placed where as the fact of. They're on the list, and I think that is that is the honor in and of itself. Well, and, and uh, in some cases, for example, like Joe Burnett, I ranked 19th. He wore 19 at UCF, which is a number that they have celebrated. So I try – sometimes I've used play, numbers based on the jersey they wore, especially on the women's side, for example. If you look at it, like McKenna Melville, who's still playing, I ranked her 20th. That's her jersey number, uh, things like that. So if, if it's within the radar where I think they should be ranked, I kind of use that jersey as kind of a way to kind of be – Kind of be creative on I, that. Again, I, again, there is no issue with that. The the symmetry is is uh, is welcomed, and maybe you should have ranked Cal ten spots lower because he's wearing number twenty six. Oh. Well, the uh, reason 16. the other reason I ranked him in sixteen is he his uh, golden goal against Missouri State in the second round got men's soccer into the round of sixteen for the first time in program history. See, so there's also See, me- meaning there. This is what I enjoy. It's not that we're nitpicking about this guy should be 15, this guy should be 16. There should be some tie-in from the number to the player. 
while still justifying that the player is worthy. Like, I don't want to rank somebody Correct. who played at UCF, didn't do much, and he's in the top 20. Like, no, these are great players, and we're going to put them where the rank actually has a tie into their career. I think that is better than just trying to figure out who really is the best player. We can figure that out when we get to number one, number two, number three. Yep. But from like three to 80, like you can just put them on the list, have fun with it. I think you've done a great job. Thank you, sir. And well, I'm sure we'll break down the top 10 next week, uh, next episode, and you'll uh, shred me to pieces probably when that gets unfolded there <laughs> a little bit. At least Jeffrey will. I can guarantee that. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But we encourage you to check that out on blackandgoldbanner.com as well. <gasps> a scandalous story involving the national champion Smurf right now in Black and Gold Banner. What is going on? UCF knife moves involved with police? Why do I feel – why do I – why – okay – like this is a pretty, this is a, this is a fairly serious story, and yet I feel like I, I sense uh, some mocking in your voice. No, this is uh, a, a national championship program cheerleading. Mm-hmm. UCF three-time national champion, and now, I mean, this is what comes with it, right? You're a high-profile program, and a, a bit of a scandal here. Yeah. So what we found out today is, was reported by uh, Night News, uh, is that back in. Uh, August. Well, really, I should say in April, it was reported by Night Moves coach Linda Gooch uh, about a possible allegation of hazing. And so the, this and this dates back to August of 2019, in which in which case what happened uh, uh, on this specific date, I think it was August 21st. You can see this article on the Black and Gold Banner. It was written by Danielle Medina, one of our newest writers. She is fantastic. Uh, and she wrote today about this. So back on August 21st, 2019, some of the new uh, Night Moves members, uh, there was a sleepover, uh, and at, at 5 in the morning, the new members were woken up by the veterans of the team, basically, like, blindfolded, and they were they, were, they had water, like, squirted at them. Uh, then they were sort of led, blindfolded, into cars in which they were then driven early in the morning to a Chick-fil-A parking lot in Oviedo. They were basically forced to, uh, I think, I think, cite or, or do a. Uh, they were supposed to like. They did like a routine or or or, or cite a um, uh, the alma mater, I believe. But the fact is this: nothing that the police found here reached the grounds of of like criminal hazing. There was no charges pressed because there was nothing here in which they they did something illegal or illicit. Uh, they didn't do an activity that would cause embarrassment. Uh, they they didn't uh, they didn't they didn't uh, put anybody's safety safety in jeopardy. There was a line in the police report that the veteran girls or veteran uh, I should say sorry I should say women uh, put some of the new members of the team in a trunk of the car. Well, in a trunk actually isn't the proper way to describe it. They put them in the back of an SUV. It was just like the back hatch of an SUV, kind of like the third row of seats. So it wasn't like they were enclosed in a trunk and driven around town. So no one's life was in jeopardy. However, and where this this story does get kind of ser- serious, is that at least one of the new members on the team that was part of this, you know, I guess what 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 the veterans would call to be a tradition, sort of a hazing tradition, uh, she found this troubling, and 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 so she uh, she basically ta- told Coach Gooch about it, and and was really not did not have fun with this other members other new members of the team actually had fun with it thought they said they enjoyed it didn't we're not troubled by it but one member of this team 
uh, was really troubled by it. Uh, it did cause depression, and she actually ended up leaving the team because she felt that she just wasn't a part of the team any longer. The team sort of um, ostracized her a little bit. And so that is sad, that no matter what they did, if you if you compare this to other hazing rituals, certainly you can look at Greek life all you want about this was you know not the worst thing in the world that happened in terms of hazing. The fact is that Night Moves lost a member of their team, a new member of their team, an incoming member of their team because of what happened here. And because of what happened here, uh, even though there were no charges pressed, Linda Gooch took action and actually uh, did not allow this team to travel to the Gasparilla Bowl, which I wasn't even—I was not aware of. I, I just figured that they were always—I figured that they were there because they're always there. But um, but the night moves did not travel to the Gasparilla Bowl versus Marshall Marshall in 2019 because of this incident, and um, and that's you know it's, it's it's unfortunate that this team lost a member and and good on Linda Gooch who again there was nothing criminally done here. But she did the right thing. She reprimanded her own team, and and this, as minor as it sounds, about you know just having water squirted on you and being blindfolded and stuff like that, uh, it, it's it, we we still should. This is this can be a slippery slope, and there's just really no reason for this. It's childish. It's stupid. Apparently, it's been something that's been going on uh, inside this team for for a long time. Uh, it's like I said, the veterans called it a tradition. Um, but there's really no need for it. Like, what does it? What does it do? It's, it obviously doesn't bring camaraderie. You can do. You can. You can build camaraderie in 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 just nicer, safer, uh, like more sane ways than trying to wake up rookie members of your team at five o'clock and and doing this to them. So, um, good on Linda Gooch. I'm glad no one was hurt, but it is a shame that someone on this team uh, decided to leave because uh, of of what happened here. And I mentioned it's worth mentioning again uh, that it was Linda Gooch that turned him in. You know, a lot of coaches would not have done that. Um, do you think hazing is out of sports, or do you still it's still relevant across the board in sports? It's still very, it's still very prevalent. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the 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 article that that Danny wrote and, and cited from talks about how there was another possible hazing incident at at one of the uh, at one of the Greek life, I believe, uh, fraternities yeah. on campus. And so, again, like this happens not only in sororities and fraternities, but it still obviously happens in college teams. Uh, I'm sure it might still happen. I'm sure it still happens in high school teams. Like this is just sort of a way of life. I believe there is uh, much more of a stigma against that like old school, like really dangerous stuff where they leave guys out in the cold for the entire night or or force force them to consume copious amounts of alcohol and stuff like that. We've seen people die. From that, at different colleges, I think it was the Penn State had a really yeah. um, nationally known case of, 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 of a, um, a student who died because of a hazing ritual. Those things have been brought under control more just because they've been brought to light as being uh, really just uh, just wrong, just flat, blatantly wrong. And so even though this does not rise to the level of that, of those previous incidents, there's really just no need for this. This is, this is stupid. It's not a tradition. It's ridiculous. Like it, it doesn't help anything. If you think that this tradition is helping you build camaraderie, then then you've got a real issue with with your team culture because you should really just build camaraderie just by hanging out and getting to know each other. Not by doing this. This doesn't really strengthen you, and this is this is, this is nothing. So hopefully they've learned a lesson. And, and I again, we we talk about Linda Gooch uh, doing the right thing here, um, and so we'll see what, we'll see what happens moving forward. But I'm glad that they were reprimanded and not allowed to go to the bowl game because if and they not deserve it if they basically basically cause one of their own teammates to quit the team. 
Yeah, no, no question about that. I'm glad it wasn't more serious. And I got Coach Gooch salute for taking action. Because, again, a lot of coaches I don't think would have done that. And that's a credit to her character. And, it, you know, and uh, she's tremendous. I've got great dealings with her. So uh, hopefully uh, we don't hear about that ever again and never happens again. For more on that story right now, go to blackandgobanneret.com with Danielle, who she's knocking it out of the park, man. She's knocking it out, man, with the, her articles out there. We did one last week with the players reacting to, uh, you know, forcing, obviously, with the situation at UCF and the university with uh, Professor Negi and some of his controversial mm-hmm. racial comments and, you know, whether he's going to get fired or not. He's not been, and some of the UCF football players have been outspoken. She's been on top of that, and it's been really a great addition to have her to cover that. We got Andrew, uh, who's been written for us, wrote about UCF-ECU rivalry uh, and things like that. I, I just want to say, we really, our entire staff, and I know I'm not naming everybody, but uh, really recovering UCF on all different angles beyond just on the field, but also things that are going on off the field that affects UCF uh, from an athletic ability and from a university standpoint. Yeah, that's kind of how we kind of spent the first block of this show. Um, because you have to talk about those things because that is sports now. This Sports is an off-field topic at this point because nothing else, nothing else is on-field. <laughs> no, not at all. So that's why you come to Black and Gold Banner, right? We're number, your number one source for all coverage of UCF Athletics, your number one podcast across the landscape. Uh, Murph, this was fun. Uh, thanks to Coach Ball Malone for joining us and talking softball. We hope you've enjoyed this edition. hope Jeff is enjoying his vacation, either trying to purchase the Mets or – hanging out in in a beach there where it's rainy which it does every day in florida but we uh, we think we'll have him back for next week or next episode anyway so uh until then for mr brian murphy i'm eric lopez follow us on social media ucf underscore banneret you know where to find murph by now on twitter but murph just in case where do they find you oh who knows a good thing i don't have a check mark next to my name otherwise they wouldn't be able to find me because i'd be shut down true uh i'm at i'm at spokes underscore murphy There you go. And I'm at Eric Lopez Elo. Uh, Stay safe, everybody. Try to do the right thing. Until next time, we hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Black and Gold Banneret Podcast.